People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. You're with the Greenwash team. I'm Jaspreet, here with my co-host Don Nicholson, and spring has finally sprung, even in the deepest, darkest Southland. Yep, when dust's on the road outside my place, I know that uh, the seasons are changing and there's been dust this week, so we're very happy to have uh, spring. Spring, springing, as you say, <laughs> and it's gorgeous. nice. I, I saw the first calves out on the grass today. You know, out of their feed sheds and into grass. I thought, man, that is that's early. But there you go. That's that's another sign of spring. So mm. it's it's yeah. been very wet the first two weeks of August. So yes, it's been good to see the grass uh, outside yeah. uh, dry enough to actually be able to mow it. Yep, and there's all the, that's true. What else is around Southland? Lots of hoardings uh, for the election, uh, upcoming mm. election, and there seemed to be a notable lack of Labour Party ones looking around the province and Green Party ones, and I'm wondering, well, have they given up on Southland? It does seem <laughs> odd. I mean, they were they're conspicuous by their absence so far. So I'm seeing far. a few pink ones, actual oh. ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's plenty of yeah. those plenty of blue uh but isn't it interesting parliament's um risen for the end of this term and uh they're all free now they're free to go home um there's no schoolmaster left anymore and uh yeah they they will either get back in and the election or they won't but one thing's for sure those people that do get back and have been part of this administration they don't have to be accountable for anything at the moment effectively it's schools out Got free. Mm. Yeah, 155 billion of debt. What was it up? 50, 50 something billion since uh, 2017. Where, where did that money go, Don? Oh, it's all been spent. Uh, spent on consumptive sort of things and, and wage increases in the state sector and consultancy. Mm. All, all the non jobs you can think about. Yeah. I was <laughs> uh, reading this article in the Herald. It was paywalled. But uh, saw a bit of it uh, from Bruce Cottrell, is it? My pride in New Zealand is turning to embarrassment. And uh, 
quite a few home truths there in that one that he says that as I traveled overseas, I was always proud to be a Kiwi, you know, and that passion is gradually, gradually fading. Uh, we have got a government that has said last week that they're going to cut down costs to the tune of $4 billion. But <laughs> what's the baseline there? How much do they spend to be able to now cut down, you know, $4 billion in plant savings? Sounds hey. really good, but hey. it's the lack of something to compare it with. Oh, it's chump change um, compared with what they have spent. I mean, it's pathetic. Uh, they've squandered um, the massive gains we've had in 35 years. And, you know, we had a GFC and we've had earthquakes and all sorts of things, but nothing like the um, volcanic eruption that's happened since 2017 in terms of bad governance. Uh, mm -hmm. I I don't speak to any New Zealander who's proud of uh, what's gone on in the, in the last five or six years. I if there is people that are proud of it, then it's time they started paying. I know, I know. When uh, the Labour government took to the Treasury, took over the Treasury benches in 2017, Crown expenditure was $99 billion mm. a year. Over the previous five years, so 2012 to 2017, that number had grown from $92 billion. So they yeah. added another $7 billion yeah. from 2012 to 2017. Yep. So that meant their year-on-year -year increase was about 1.5%, yeah. adding up to about 9% in the last five years, mm. in the five years before 2017. What has happened since 2017? Our total government expenditure, which just rose by $7 million in the preceding five years, has now risen by $52 billion. So yeah. instead of $99 billion a year, we now spend $151 billion a year, 9% yeah. annualized year-on-year -year increase. Yeah. And if this wasn't enough, they are saying that <laughs> in this the budget that they revealed, they're going to spend an additional 32% over the next four years. <laughs> that would be a further $99 billion increase. So we're going to be somewhere in the realm of $240, $250 billion. Yeah, sorry, and I got got my number, uh, wording wrong earlier. I said um, debt. I meant exactly what you've just talked about: expenditure, expense, expenses. Yeah. But but our debt has gone through the roof as well. So don't let some pricey bike lanes, some pricey yeah. bike lanes, bike lanes. Yeah, they they're sort of like uh, road cones, aren't they? They're everywhere nowadays. Um, mm. they, and at the same time, they have taken our borrowings from which was sixty billion to hundred and sixty billion. So our annual expenditure. New Zealand has gone up from 99 billion to 150 billion and mm. it's going to keep increasing. And our annual or our total borrowing has gone up from 60 billion to 160 billion. And they seem to think $4 billion is whoa, saving heaps. Yeah. And they take us for fools. Actually, they well, do. Let me answer my own question. They do. Yeah, they do. They absolutely do. Uh, they're not our friends when it comes to the stuff. And of course, uh, it's all about redistribution and the squeaky wheel was, you know, you can just see the envy that was going on for 30 years. Uh, you know, we, we haven't got our, you know, we, we've sort of pulled back on compulsory unionism. The state sector is not getting its own way so much for the last 30 years. And all of a sudden they got this chance to get it all back. And they've done it in spades. And of course, as you often hear me say, uh, the people that pay for that or the 
the environment pays for all of it because that's the genesis of New Zealand's economy and it will pay again. And yet right now, as you know, Jasper, the uh, dairy payout's down a couple of bucks potentially uh, or is and uh, lamb and meats uh, look like they're a couple of dollars a kilogram off the top as well. And, um, you know, the $82 billion uh, export sector from primary produce last year uh, I can't see it being in the 80 billion realm this year. I am quietly braced on for another hit. So the next GDT auction is uh, 24 hours away, 5th of September. Probably we see the result 6th Wednesday morning here in New Zealand. Seeing the way the last two GDT auctions have gone, I am just quietly braced for the worst. Keep in mind, already they're saying that 75% dairy farmers won't make a profit this year. That is less tax in the coffers. So where is the spending going to come come from that they envision? No new taxes. Remember, guys? No yeah. new taxes. Oh, and before we forget, your feedback at 2057 and emails at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. It is uh, probably before we go to the feedback we have, there's one last thing I would like to highlight. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, paper that came out recently towards the end of July, it projects that the New Zealand economy will have the drum roll please the second lowest GDP growth in the world in 2024 placing us at 159th place out of 160 the saving grace is Equatorial Guinea that Mm. is going to perform worse than us I mean, we are worse than every basket case economy. And we seem to think we are spending like there is no tomorrow. We've just been promised, what, uh, free dental care to up to under 30s? Well, that's if Labor get back into power and by 2026. Uh, But, yeah, there is, that's a really big warning. uh, We are below places like, you know, these war-torn states. African countries, Venezuela, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Greece, look, all of this, just look, equatorial guineas below us. Look where United States and UK is, and they're in the negative territory as well from memory. I haven't got it right in front of me, but mm. Nor- Norway's uh, kingpin and, mm. um, of course, some other um, countries similar to Norway. So I've been watching... Um, yeah, we, we keep talking about climate change and net zero and the cost of that in this country. And, you know, we've got this this basket case economy and we're still going down this virtuous path of uh, net zero. It just can't happen. And, of course, when you look at Europe, plenty of countries are saying, nah, can't do it, all too hard. And so uh, I just recommend to listeners, um, if you want something to really um fill yourself up on this information, go to Zero Hedge. It uh, really does give you a lot. It gives you both sides of the story, mm. uh, I hope. But um, there's a lot of stuff saying, no, nah, it's all too hard. Net zero, all too hard. And, of course, new Miles um, Kelly, Professor Miles Kelly from Cambridge, has said New Zealand uh, $550 billion to do the full transition to net zero. While we've got this basket case economy, I don't think so. <laughs> this, the reality check is going to happen very soon. And the first thing that's again going to go is the climate agenda, that much of Europe is winding back. But also note, they are heading into autumn and Mm. winter. Mm. And, you know, 
there's nothing like the freezing and the hungry uniting there and they can't they know they cannot afford to have a mutiny on their hands which is what's going to happen if they continue like this but as new zealand as we continue to borrow more every week print more money be it for our you know would be media merger or be it for a rich based um healthcare system or a cycle bridge to nowhere or a light rail or another consultant we are spending billions nothing to show for it our future is being robbed man are we being greenwashed we're being brainwashed all right um and now just going back to eu or europe for a bit and then to ireland uh, i even read where the the standard practice of harvesting peat yeah it's it's basically like lignite poor man's lignite or ultra poor coal you might say but they've been doing it for hundreds of years i remember learning about the peat cutters of ireland and how how it was such a skill well even they are under threat now because uh, even though the peat regrows uh it does grow back uh that's not allowed to do it it's not, it's not sustainable and the other thing that's happening in the uk there's a bit of pushback on this big push to have heat pumps you know electricity feeding heat pumps and of course uh the power goes off heat pumps not so flash uh people go cold and people have realized that electricity just keeps going up in price and the price of gas is pretty pretty good relatively so that's the problem when you try to narrow down the source of energy for a country you will have price increases where the if you take away choice if you take away choice you will have price increases that's mm. the problem but that's where we are i mean standard old play for us isn't it we're always sticking the boot <laughs> into our own country wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great to be able to say a positive thing about new zealand uh for a change and of course it's hard to because we know there's so many reef fish ingratiating themselves around the fringes take taking a paycheck in non-jobs while we're all burning gone we can leave that you know those feel good stories for msm <laughs> we we are the reality check radio for a reason and the reality the writing on the wall 159th place economy out of 160 surveyed by the imf that's mm. that's pretty much the bottom line mm. and uh, we have a couple of uh, listener feedbacks on similar lines ladies is written in rosa hey just say no stop paying tax if you all do it it might shock the government as dr david martin said the rhinos did you know what rosa so many are not going to be making any money that they might not be paying any tax anyway yeah 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 well well you think about it uh, as farmers we know that in the next 12 months there will be a lot of tax i would imagine overpaid tax coming back to farmers um mm. so i don't think there'll be a lot coming out of the rural sector uh, to feed the coffers of government this next 12 months but i you know stand to be corrected on that interestingly this one here i couldn't quite remember what it applied to is just cut the fingers off for each lie they tell media would soon sort <laughs> themselves out and that was from bonny i think it was around the climate lies and uh, uh, uh and stuff like that but yeah yeah that's how it would have been in the old days but we don't do that anymore thankfully someone else has uh followed probably your monologue uh, don here who has said that don absolutely right very few are prepared to stand up unless it smacks them in the face they just don't care with the report cards we have from the imf i i think uh, 
it is home truth season now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a couple of, uh, loving the song "Little Boxes on the Hillside." Um, that we that we played quite apt, I thought, but good to have the feedback there. Yeah, so the song that we played last time, it is by Malvina Reynolds. It was, uh, it's I believe, nearly fifty years old, and uh, she wrote it towards the end of her career. Little boxes by Malvina Reynolds, and some of the lyrics there really caught uh, Don's fancy and and mine actually. That yeah. all the people in the houses all went to university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same. There's mm. doctors and lawyers and ex- business executives all made out ticky-tacky and they all look the same. It, it really fits our briefcase class now, doesn't it, Don? The song. Uh, the fish, as you call them. Oh, I was going to say, all, all the networkers and the collaborators all fit into that, don't they? <laughs> I mean, they're the two. I remember talking about collaboration 10, 15 years ago, and I could see it was a problem because it wasn't being done in a fair-minded way. It was all around coercion rather than voluntary interactions like you and I can have. Mm. Uh, and, of course, if you don't uh, don't create the collaborative process with fact, as happened in environmental uh, sort of like environment councils, I'm sure they weren't feeding us with the right facts and feeding the the collaborators with the right facts. Of course, you get a different outcome. It, and that's it, it's only in New Zealand. I mean, when I came to New Zealand nearly 15 years ago now, don't that I started hearing the word collaborators being uh, spoken of, uh, you know, loud mm, and proud in India. Mm. It's always been referred to in harsh tones. Oh, yes. And collaborator, uh, you know, what wartime uh, oh, yes, significance that. there that collaboration is cooperation with the enemy against mm. one's country of citizenship in wartime. Mm. That's, well, it was always a four-letter word for me, yes, collaborators. Yes. Yeah, no, same here for, for the way I understood it too. But, of course, that was a new, the new way of talking, the new dialogue. It's part of the, you know, we know about the words. We know about the nudging. We know about all that stuff now. And this is all about language and how it influences people's slowly slowly moves the dial as they say so there's another term moving the dial mm-hmm. but um yeah it's we've, we've been we've been set up and it looks like we were up for it being set up because there hasn't been any pushback uh that i was aware of you know even though some of us tried to push back we had so many people saying but you should be nice you should collaborate you should <laughs> fit, fit in and of course those same people are now in a bit of a bind because um the hole's been dug quite deep. Now, in terms of, I don't want to be uh, giving the impression that I don't value uh, the preservation of the environment at the right level for for the use that we need to make of it. Um, I don't like seeing the desecration of the environment. I don't like seeing um, wanton pollutants, um, you know, like plastics and and rubbish on the roadsides or, or in the waterways. I, I don't like seeing mm. any of that. It's not about that. It's about having empirical evidence to see the trend, state and trend of your water, for instance, or in terms of uh, climate, seeing honesty and integrity. And uh, clearly we haven't got that as as we find um, in international media. I reckon, Jaspreet, there's about a thousand to one a thousand alarmist uh, articles to one article that might have so, uh, be allowed to have some sort of sceptical bent on it. 
So uh, it's it's a sad place to be when you can't trust anybody. And, you know, that was the difference for me in all of this. I was so trusting that news was worthy. News was always worthy. You read the South and Times and it was fact. That's what you thought. Yeah, I, I need to thank India. I need to thank Motherland for the way I've grown up, been told to grow up, uh, you know, all the time being very wary of the three Ps, the police, <laughs> press and politicians. When <laughs> I went and joined Citibank at a mortgage underwriter in India 2003, those three Ps were extended to five Ps, the five Ps professions we don't lend to, police, press, politician, property dealers and pawn brokers. So, mm. yeah. Uh, always taken all of this with a pinch of salt, but uh, I think we should uh, Don uh, introduce our next guest. We have another international guest this time, and from Holland. Yes, yeah, name's um, Joss Ubel, and he is the Farmers Defence Force Vice President. A young man, I think, in his thirties, and he is very forceful. Like uh, the organisation he is part of. Uh, has made a huge difference. You would argue that uh, they've had a bigger presence than any uh, farming protest group in the world. I think they could teach, um, and I don't mean to say this unkindly, but they would teach the New Zealand farmers a thing or two about how to protest. And, and how not to collaborate, because if there's one thing Joss is not, it's <laughs> unapologetically not collaborating, not taking any bit of this nonsense, because we know where collaboration takes you. Mm. So, uh, yeah, he talks wisely for a, for a young head. He talks wisely. And at one point, he um, even brings up how he doesn't like protectionism, you know, because mm. I, I was big on saying, well, hang on, you've, you're getting a wee bit of a payoff by uh, the European Union or your own government. Uh, we don't have that in New Zealand. So, you know, the playing field's a bit, a bit different, but he actually covered it really well. So, Look, uh, I think, sit back and listen to him. He's got a lot to say, and uh, we were honoured to have him on. Absolutely. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you for joining us on Greenwash this morning. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed with uh, Jaspreet and Don. Uh, it's being quite a common topic on our show in recent months uh, has climate change and emissions. Uh, yet hardly a week goes by, we don't let you off the hook. But it's time we thought to uh, involve other countries' uh, perspective on this sort of stuff. And today we have uh, Jos Ubels, I hope I've got that right, uh, Vice President of the Farmers Defence Force from the Netherlands uh, with us. Now, the Netherlands has been in the media in New Zealand, and I think we're probably only getting one side of the story because uh, MSM uh, continually just gives us one side of the story. And it shows that, uh, well, we've been told that uh, there's been some serious protests. Uh, not quite 100% sure what the outcome has been. But in 2019, uh, the Farmers Defence Force was established because uh, effectively nitrogen discharges were uh, from animals and farms were were a problem. So, Joss, welcome to this show. And um, you know, what's what's uh, been the progress so far? Let Let's start at the beginning. Twenty nineteen. What's what spurred you into life with your organisation? Yeah. 
So first of all, I'm very glad you're having me on the show, and um, um, I'm very willing to explain some things that are going on in the Netherlands right now and uh, have been going on from, uh, let's say, 2019. Actually, it started uh, way earlier, but 2019 was some sort of starting point. Um, in 2019, the first thing that happened was that some uh, environmental and animal uh, activists um, invaded a family, fa family farm. And our authorities uh, thought it was a great idea to go there and to say, okay, the situation is in control, so we don't have to take those people out of the barn or out of the animal uh, places where, where they kept their, their pigs and their animals. Um, and uh, they can make their protest there. And if the, any damage is well done, uh, we will uh, make a problem out of this with, with those activists. But if not, we give them the time to make their point and to get out of there. And then we said as, as, as farmers all over the Netherlands were shocked by this reaction because um, they broke into the property of a, of, of a family farm. And th those are just inhabitants of the Netherlands as everyone else. So I think it's very illegal to to break into somebody's home or or even in somebody's stable. So th this was the starting point from uh, from Mark van der Oever, uh, our our president, um, to start uh, like a Facebook group. Um, uh, and in this Facebook group, he asked the question if it's normal that farmers are are treated like that, and uh, that he said we are we are have the legitimacy. Um, as as inhabitants of the Netherlands to make a civil arrest, and he said maybe if the next farm will be evaded, uh, invaded by activists, we should make a civil arrest with many farmers together, um, and uh, we don't need to hurt those people, but we can get them out the farms by ourselves. So this was the starting point, and uh, I, I remember his words uh, uh, shortly after we met. He said, "In the beginning, I thought nobody was interested because my Facebook group was like 25 people, and nobody go there, and nobody uh, was interested in joining." But he said three days later, uh, I don't know why, but it started rolling. And within one week, I had 3,000 people on the Facebook side. And then it started rolling and rolling. And after like one month, he had like 10 or 20,000 people uh, in, involved in his website, in the in Facebook group. Um, he started developing a logo. He did this all online. He said, okay, what do you like the most? And what should we do with this? And it were all farmers and people that loved farming that participated in that. And uh, this was the, the moment that I got involved as well. Um, because in my region, nobody was involved uh, so actively. So I thought, okay, maybe if nobody wants, I should do this because I think it's very important. Um so this was actually the starting sign, and then there was the, these rumors that the farmers want to have a huge protest in the, in the cap, actually not in the capital, but in the, the city where our uh, parliament is hosted in Den Haag. Um, and they said, okay, let's go there, but we need to organize and we need to do it big. And they saw that Farmers Defense Force was a beginning or uh, yeah, to, to centralize farmers and, and to collect farmers all together. So they asked Farmers Defense Force if we could join in this, 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 yeah, organizing this. And this was the first moment that I got involved very uh, actively. Um, and we, we uh, organized one of the hugest protests uh, that is seen worldwide. So, yeah. 
Well, it was it was it was fantastic to watch on on television. The bits we did see, uh, as I said, it was limited in its publicity. Here, uh, it carried on. You, you had to find it on social media to to know that it was carrying on. And uh, and we do have a um, an organisation in New Zealand that has done similar things in recent times, but it's very very rare. So, uh, well done to you uh, and your colleagues. It's. One thing that's intriguing me uh, that we should perhaps clear up at the outset here is there seems to be several different farming groups, um, perhaps all fighting for the same thing, or are they? Because there seems to be a variance of them. I, I know the organic side is quite sort of split from you guys, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, tell, tell us about the number of factions. I mean, and the reason I ask that yeah. is we had Terry Boudet on the show a couple of months ago, and yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, he's on your side of the ledger, but he gave us an inkling that there was something not quite cohesive about all the all the activist groups. Can you explain? Well, well, of course. Um, um, yeah, when you have people, people are always diverse, and they are never uh, sticking together very closely. It's always uh, we have to have some collective enemy so uh, that that people join. So this is the per- this is normal behavior, I think. But um, we have, of course, before all these problems arise and got so big as they are now, uh, we also had farmers organizations in the Netherlands. Uh, they were all very old organizations with a lot of influence in politics, and they uh, they were pretty strong. But uh, they were always, um, uh, how to say, this is for an example, in the Netherlands, we have the LTO, it's uh, the Land and Agriculture Organization. Uh, it's um, a lot of older farmers that quit their farm or whatever, or they have like it as, as a second job, they join this organization and they work for them. And they are, of course, they are having, um, they're having correct opinions and they try to do, do for the good. But the problem is that they are um, paid by the government. The most of the, the income of those organizations is income produced by the government. So uh, we always say, uh, never bite the hand that feeds you. So this is what this organization has ever have as a problem. They are not paid only by their members. They are paid by the government. Um, so the government founding them with a lot of money and they always try to uh, change the legislation for farmers for the better. But if the government pushes through, they will follow because they need this money to hold their organization into life. So this is the whole discussion where where that's why there is place for a second organization, a second big one. And that's why Farmers Defense Force was pretty successful after the demonstrations in founding a new organization. We now, we now have we have 14,000 uh, dairy farmers in the Netherlands and uh, 45 to 50,000 farmers overall. And at the moment, we have like 5,000 active members in our organization, paying members. Um, that uh, and, and we have a lot of supportive members as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can see the Facebook group and our social medias is like uh, watched more than 60,000 times a day. And it's, yeah, we're very active at the moment and we are very successful in this. And uh, it's happy to see that it's uh, working. Yeah. That's that's good to see. And those are, you know, having 5,000 active paying members. That's that's great, Joss. I remember reading about that protest that you mentioned, was it? And I'm going to mispronounce some Dutch names. So my apologies at the outset. I believe it was a box till or some such place where meet the victims. Or this was uh, an international group that has been staging protests out here in Australia as well. They went into this uh, property. And that's another thing. Farmers seem to face the world over. 
just invasion of your private property rights out here. Like over there, you said they were there, over a hundred of them in this uh, pig farm, right occupying that place for nearly a day. We have the same thing here. We have drones overhead. We have Greenpeace activists. We have had activists literally drive up to farmers' gates, park themselves there, try to take pictures on the worst weather of the day. You know, my husband and I have dealt with it once we had a down cow, a cow that was struggling after giving birth. So, you know, you help the cow up with hip lifters and someone taking pictures of the cow and then complaining, you're not looking after this and so on. And you you can't keep everyone happy. But farming, as Don has often said, seems to be the only occupation that goes naked in public. Everyone has an opinion on you, don't they? Everyone. Everyone. It's quite funny because um, I always uh, we, we deal with these problems a lot in the Netherlands. Of course, um, we have this we have a, si uh, a similar situation, but we have also the problem that we are a very tiny country with a lot of people. We have 18 million people living in a in a like a country that isn't even visible on the map. So um, yeah, they, they we have a lot of people in our country that live from jobs that are not creating anything. They are just um, jobs for advising people and, and, and going. Non-jobs, uh, non yep. Non-jobs, yeah. We have a lot of them. And those people are also, also very easy in, in judging uh, people that create life and, and, and take care of life. Um, and I always say um, uh, to those people, for example, last was, uh, lately there was a discussion about a farmer that had um, uh, like uh, 10 of his newborn calves were all dying. And uh, this was like because of his heifers that had some uh, some disease. So, uh, yeah, this is I think this is normal practice. It can happen like that. And no farmer will be happy about this. But it's not like you are a bad farmer. Something happens to your animals and you try to take the best care you can. But um, yeah, sometimes you have like a, a few death animals uh, in a row. This can happen. But then these people are discussing on television and everywhere that, mm. yeah, this farmer is a very bad guy and he's not taking care of his animals and he shouldn't be a farmer and blah, blah, blah. And the only answer that I as a farmer can give to that, of course, those people, they, they, they have a point. It's not nice to have a dying animal. And they never had a dying animal in their life. But they also never had a living animal. So how can they discuss with somebody that does? And this is the, the, the subject. It's very easy to speak about uh, somebody else uh, that, that you don't have to do the same job as they do. So it's actually non-discussion. They are talking about food production, but they're eating three times a day. So they can be thankful. I think they should be. Yeah, yeah. never, never uh, blame a farmer with your mouth full. Um, should be the exactly. argument. But it, it's it's interesting because uh, I don't. You know, while I've got lots of opinions, and I imagine you have, and Jasper, we've all got opinions. We don't go into our cities and tell them how to run their cities, uh, unless we're paying taxes to those cities where we have the right to 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 have a say. But we don't go into businesses of a city or a township, and say uh, how to run your supermarket. We just don't do that. But it, isn't it interesting how society seems to think, the modern society, that the urbanised modern society, um, is that you can have a say over over the farmland around you, uh, even though you've got no ownership rights. And then on top of that, you have politicians making dis directives and decisions as if they own something. 
but they don't. They only own their noise effectively. So um, in, in the Netherlands, I just want to clear this up too. Always in the media presentation over here, it's, it talked about nitrogen um, allowances. Now, when I've been to the Netherlands, I've seen uh, the, the level of the water in the sort of canals around you know, some of the farms I've visited, and I thought, oh, well, they must be talking about nitrate emissions in the water. But now I gather, doing more reading, it is much more obvious. It is around nitrous oxide emissions um, relative to the climate warming potential. And and there's an attempt to expropriate uh, or, or appropriate, maybe expropriate, just depends on how you view it, um, a lot of farms diminish production or take the farms out of production altogether uh, for nitrous uh, oxide emissions. Now, what is the story? Yeah, we've got the same stuff going on here, but but we're not talking about um, taking farms out of production. We're talking about, in New Zealand, we're talking about um, taking... Mm. Making them, them economically it, unviable. Though. Yeah, take, <laughs> taking them by tax. That's what the uh, the argument will be. So um, what is the proposal uh, that's that's in front of you now that has got everyone so up in arms? Uh, yeah. I think I know what it is, but I'll let you explain it, of course. Yeah, I, I will explain. But first, I want to react on the introduction of your question. Uh, that farmers are uh, like um, uh, picked on as the only group in society and the rest of society is is left alone, uh, left in quiet. And I think um, we, we, we must not forget, um, I don't know exactly the digits for uh, New Zealand, but I know the numbers in the Netherlands. Uh, we are like uh, with our farmers, we are 2% of the Netherlands. So all the farmers together are 2% of the people, of the population. And 2% of the people are providing for 98% of them. So, and then we go quickly into politics. If you look at uh, who is uh, having an opinion, it's the 98% of the people having an opinion about 2%. And we are just a minority. And minorities will always lose if they don't have support of the majority. Um, and we try to have support on many ways, but they are always uh, attacking again and again because some small uh, minority on their side is, is, with the help of big NGOs as G Greenpeace or whatsoever, is hitting on farms because they have some uh, earning money in this way because they can earn money on, on, on yeah on, on greenwashing or there are many things that they make a lot of money on, on uh, environmental uh, welfare. And um, uh, we must never forget that politicians are just easy followers of the majority. They are always just running after their elections. And if the majority of the country wants change, they also want change because they just want the votes. So they don't care about this 2% farmers. They will care about the majority. So if you want to win as a farmers, you have to speak with this 2% as loud as the 98% can together. This is the, my opinion about solving the, the discussion. And then go, going back to the, the, the point of your question, um, uh, the, 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 what they're trying to do now in the Netherlands, um, they say, okay, we are buying farms as a government because the emissions that their farms are, are, are having are nitrogen emissions caused by ammonia. Um, and these emissions are not a problem because ammonia is lighter than air and goes up in the sky very quickly. So ammonia is not a real discussion, but ammonia drops down because it binds up in the sky with a pollution uh, by carbon dioxide and carbon fiber and everything. 
and then it comes back and it comes back as deposition on nature. And the deposition on nature having an effect on the plants and the nature and the biodiversity in, in, in the Netherlands. This is their, uh, their, um, yeah, their explanation. But the funny thing is, we, there is a lot of research to be done, and there's a lot of research already done about ammonia traveling in the, in the air. Uh, the emission uh, ammonia is going down, is going up very quickly, but the emission uh, from ammonia that stays on a low level is staying very close to the farm, like 200 to 400 meters. And the funny thing is, all the farmers in the Netherlands have more than 200 meters soil around the farms, you can imagine, because they need the fields. So the most of the ammonia deposition that our farmers are accountable of, in my opinion, is falling down on their own fields. Uh, so it's a circular system. And this is very clearly because farming is like is, is a big part of the circle of life. We, we, we use crops to feed ourselves, to feed animals, and the animals produce um, a protein that we feed off on, and they produce excrements, the excrements we use on the fields that grow crops, and this is the circle of life. And if we look into the real problem uh, of the environmental impact of humanity, is burning fossil fuels. We burn a lot of fossil fuels, and this is going just up in the sky, and one day it will come down. And this is also the circle of life because oil comes out of the soil as well. But this takes millions of years. And the circle of life of animals and, and agriculture is a very short circle. It's a circle of years. So we should be happy with farms um, uh, taking emissions out of the sky, even the emissions that other people create. So, so you would be uh, of the view, I hope, that um, CO2 is beneficial for 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 growth for greening of your 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 paddocks and and your vegetation uh do you have the demonization uh going on in media in in the netherlands about co2 i mean that seems to be common and um and i've i think your your national broadcaster is called nos uh if if i've got that right uh do they demonize uh co2 and say that it's a it's a hell of a, a gas that's cooking the planet uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, it's um, this, yeah, of course they are doing this. Um, I don't know if they're doing this on on purpose. Um, I, if they're doing, <laughs> my my children having a fight with the dogs. <laughs> don't worry. Okay, uh, let's continue. Um, I don't I don't know if they are doing this actually on purpose. Um, we have to conclude that. Um, our NOS is um, uh, the National uh, Broadcasting uh, Network. They are founded by the government with 900 million euro annually. So we can say that they are in the same problem as the as the, um, uh, the farmers' organizations. They get so much money from the government, it's very hard to fight the government and to publish negative information about the people that pay you uh, like everything that you have. Um, so th this is a, a main issue, um, but they also have a lot of lack of knowledge. Um, they are just following scientists, and the scientists that are um, well, the producing a lot—they are producing a lot of information. Are scientists that are mainly on the left side and mainly on the green perspective, and they have—they—they they want change, so they write their 
uh, they publish their their materials in, in yeah they are not very fairly announcing everything of the whole story you know they they are if it's a bad outcome they will just not publish it it seems to me uh, just that it's a case of following the money so the media is being funded the farmer organizations so called are being funded the academics lecture teachers professors whosoever is putting this information out they are being funded and you know that's why like people like us out here in new zealand we have reality check radio cuz our media is exactly the same they are funded under the guise of something that's called the public interest journalism fund they've all yeah. signed up to an international climate uh, you know education initiative and that's all they do so our government actually was recently found out that it had paid $300,000 to a media house the one of the biggest in the country to put certain climate stories and run a one hour special climate show without even saying that it was a promotion because you know they have to turn the public sentiment against farming and for us here in new zealand i'm not sure how your economics work but for us the year last year year ended 31st may 2022 primary industries farming accounted for nearly 82% of our exports and we yeah. are out here trying to just make it completely unviable but listening to you there's this name that seems to keep popping up whenever i read something about uh, holland and this is this again i'm going to butcher his name the chemist by the name of johan wellenbrook is that yeah. a yeah tell us more about him this this guy pops up everywhere this lean mean chemist who seems to know it all actually he's not a chemist at all he's just pretending uh-huh. um but yeah well what happened um in we had um uh, emission legisla- legislation in the netherlands uh for decades mm-hmm. uh, in the netherlands we are a tiny country so we we uh, try to be very um uh, we try to produce a lot uh, in agriculture but we also try to um do it as clean and lean as possible because this is very important if you live in a country with a lot of people if you are just polluting your environment closely to the farm everybody will see and everybody will notice and this will mm-hmm. hurt your uh, license to produce you know they they will uh, not Absolutely. accept you the way of your product production so we we worked a lot on this and um our government uh, made some legislation changes that um if you are close to nature or close to some environmental critical uh, object um you have to have do something with your emissions you have to uh, uh lower your emissions or or take care of uh, the way you emit or whatsoever so this was um locked in some uh some special calculation module that if you want to for example if you have 100 cows and you will want to grow your farm by 10 cows or something like that you have to ask the government and you have to put this information in this computer program and it will calculate um the effect of your emissions of this 10 extra cows on the environment close to your farm and if this effect will be smaller than a certain percentage uh, you are allowed without any changes of your farm and this was common practice uh, but this environmental activist that you call a chemist is a Johan Vollebroek and he this guy went with money of greenpeace he went to the uh, uh, to make a huge lawsuit against the government and he said this software you are using and the way you um, calculate this is not correct because 
if there are 10 farmers growing their cattle with 10 cows, it's actually 100 cows growing uh, in, in the total popula uh, population of, of animals. So, yeah, if you just do the small changes 10 times, it can be a big change. Um, so the government tricked the system a little bit by uh, by doing it in this order. And actually, he had a point. Um, so it's just that our government using um, uh, not very rigid rules, not very rigid uh, legislation. It was pretty weak, founded on weak uh, weak um, uh, tools and weak, weak uh, um, calculations. So it was for him pretty easy to uh, kick this legislation down. But the effect of this was huge. In 2015, this legislation was founded. Johan Vollenbroek uh, broke this legislation. He said this is not longer legal. The government should come up with new, uh, new methods. Um, but they can't because um, a lot of things were done from 2015 till now or till 2019. A lot of farms uh, build bigger sheds. A lot of industry grow. A lot of more cars were present in the Netherlands. So the effect on nature was not clear. Um, so he won the lawsuit and now the government should be going back to 2019 with emissions, but they can't because it, it's just impossible. Um, so then the government uh, said, okay, if we have this, um, these restrictions, it's called the KDW, it's a, the a K, uh, KDW, it's the it's legislation that they say this is the critical deposition value of nature. And every nature preservation in the Netherlands has this value. Um, it's uh, a steady value, a static value, and uh, we should go below this value. But the funny thing is, if you calculate how much uh, reduction we need in the Netherlands uh, to, to uh, meet those values in some areas, um, if you calculate this correctly, we should lose all human life in the Netherlands. Not only the farms, everything should go out of the Netherlands. We should be an empty country. And then we're still not meeting this, these values. So it's, um, it, it's an unbeginning task. We can never fulfill this task. So Johan Fulbrook has uh, won this lawsuit, and that's why he got a lot of attention. And uh, he has actually, uh, the government is checkmate. Because uh, they need to measure, they need to cut down emissions to an amount that is never going to be reached. So we are locked in lawsuits and locked in in legislations, and we are never going to win this, and we are never going to change it if the law is not changing. So the simple thing is, the law should be changed in the Netherlands, but the policy politics are not willing to. You recently had the BBB come on didn't you? Did something change with their coming in? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, because of the farmers' protest, it was not only the 1st of uh, uh, October in 2019, but also 16th of October, we had a second one. It was um, even bigger. And after that, we had a lot of more protests. And you could see that uh, along the protests, there was no resistance of society. Actually, the resistance came from the government, came from mm. activist organizations, came from uh, the media, but there was no resistance in a protest of the um, yeah of, of the Netherlands a as a country. Uh, we got a lot of thumbs on the highways when we go there with tractors. Actually, all people that crossing there, they had a lot of drama. 
from us driving there, but they still put up their thumbs and say, you're good, do a good job. We finally, we fully understand you and fight for your right to be a farmer because we need you. Um, so this, uh, we have only 50,000 farmers. For one seat in the chamber, in the parliament, we need 70,000 votes. So when the Farmers Civilians Party, the BBB, came up, we were very skeptical because we said, okay, they will never get a seat in the chamber because we had just had 50,000 farmers. If they all vote for this party, we still had not have enough. So, uh, but later we found out that the civilians back the farmers so strongly that they see that they want Dutch food and Dutch farmers so desperately that they all backed this political organization in the votes. And now this is the second biggest uh, political party in the Netherlands. So um, we had the first chamber, um, uh, the parliament, actually, no, it's not the parliament, it's the, it's the chamber, the this first chamber, and the first chamber is uh, deciding if rules are correct or not. They can block legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, they are now, uh, the, the, the BBB is now present there for more than, they are the second biggest one there. But the local government, the, the sitting government now try to make uh, deals with several other smaller uh, political parties to still push their agenda. Um, but now in November, we will have new elections for the parliament. So for the government, actually. And those elections hopefully will also be won by the BBB. And then we can change the laws uh, very quickly. Um, but the yeah, it's, it's still a struggle and a fight that still goes on. Uh, but I think, yeah, it has a lot of effect. But even the BBB has struggles to to stand up in this uh, yeah, swarm of injustice and, and unfair unfair laws. So, so, so the thing for me is um, it seemed that the BBB was slightly askew to you, slightly different to you, but you now sound like you're more aligned with them. Is there uh, is that is that a fair comment? And is there any other what might have been formerly um, sort of disparate groups willing to join in and and be a force, a bigger force with you? Well, actually, um, yeah, you, you, you no, the BBB is not fully on on line aligned with all the farmers. At the moment, the farmers stood up and they protested very firstly uh, several times throughout the, the the last years, and this gave the farmers' party, the BBB, the 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 chance to get big. But they, now they are pretty big, and farmers are just a small percentage of their votes. So they are also re- already shifting a little bit to to the to um. Yeah, the common grounds. You know, they want to uh, be a part of the government, no matter what. So they are giving up some sort of yeah rights of farmers that they, they, they protested for. And now they said, OK, maybe we should change it a little bit because we need to also make alliances in politics. Um, and this is uh, critical because I think they will lose a lot of votes in the next elections because farmers are seeing this and they are feeling bad because they, they stood up and now they are not represented correctly. So I think the BBB uh, as an organization is not a bad organization for farmers. They are better than the the, the sitting politics now, but they are on the turning point now, on the tipping point of changing their uh, opinions about farmers and and 
going a little bit more close to the other side. So I think we still have more work to do as a farmers organization, Farmers Defense Force. And that's for now we can proudly announce that one of our uh, members, Sita van Kijnbema, is going into politics herself. Um, we are, uh, first of all, we were very skeptic about this step because we said uh, politics is a poisonous business. Um, it's uh, You will never win in politics. But we see that uh, we need one very sturdy lady in the chamber. And I think Sita van Kijnbema is the best example we have. And she will be, uh, I think, pretty big and pretty quickly. Um, tomorrow it will be announced uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. So it will be on the news, I think. And she will be like um, the second party for farmers in the chamber. And she can uh, try to get the BBB on the same track as they should. So I think it's a strong force. That's fantastic news. Um, I've I've watched her on some video clips, and she's got a very strong delivery style. And uh, so have you, by the way. And so, uh, um, yeah, you'll make a difference. But it's interesting. I, another question I've got at, at that juncture is: Has the European uh, Commission or the European Union um, infiltrated uh, effectively their ideas into into your groups? What what influences the European Union or the European Commission? I'm never quite sure which way to say that. Yeah, well, we have of course the uh, we call it the the WEF. It's the Klaus Schwab uh, clan, and uh, they are having a lot of influence. Uh, some of the people that are in uh, European politics, they are very enthusiastic about his ideas, and they follow him uh, because um, there is a lot of money coming from abroad in these organizations and. Um, yeah, politics are only favorable for two things, for votes and for money. And um, yeah, they are saying, it's also a very easy story. We're trying to save the climate, so vote for us. Yeah, of course, it's a very nice story, but saving the climate is not doing is, is not affected by words or whatsoever. It's affected by deeds. And the only people that I know that really have an effect on nature and climate because they live and thrive on nature and climate are farmers. So everybody else is just consuming and just um, emitting and consuming and breathing and enjoying their life. Uh, but farmers are the only ones that are producing and contributing to the system of nature. And I think we should uh, pay more attention to that. And uh, the European Union is thriving on people, uh, a lot of leftist people infiltrated the, the politics the, the last uh, three or four decades. And um, I always uh, come back to our, our own organization. We are just started three years ago as a farmers organization. Just uh, we were farmers and we were not found uh, uh, keen on founding anything. We're just keen on spoken out for our own uh, people, for our, our, our farmers uh, and for our own businesses. But if I look at the, the last two years, how many friends worldwide and how many um, uh, alliances we made worldwide and also in, in nationwide with, with uh, big organizations, with big uh, multinationals, with businesses, they are all trying to support us in many ways and we are supporting them. It We are structurizing this as an organization pretty quickly in just three years. You just should imagine how they could do this the last three decades. They do the same job as we're doing for three years now for 30 years. So they have a lot of friends 
in in so many places in the world, in so many parts of the um, politics, of the government, of the multinationals, of NGOs, everywhere. And I think we can change this in uh, to our place, but we need a lot of more work. Yeah, you know, I've, I've got a sort of cynical approach to that. I mean, I, great if we can have a global uh, um, team of players to push back on on that sort of stuff on this sort of stuff. But what I've noted uh, is there's generally I'm going to call them there's crony ecosystems that you know you talked about WEF. Uh, clearly, there's some big corporates in behind all that stuff, and the banks and a whole lot of uh, you know people we we won't see invisibles um uh, but we so we trust some of those players that you've just mentioned uh with eyes wide open because i'm not sure they'll always be your friends and that's a problem for me from the other side of the planet um and the other thing that we've got that that is slightly different to you is in new zealand there is no no protections for farming uh, we don't get any environmental grants, although there is a few starting to appear. After 30 years, we went we went subsidy free, production subsidy free in 1985. So we're 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 sort of clean of government protections, and so that's a difference that we see with European um, farmers to us. Uh, quite, and and we're an exporting nation. Uh, we can't really set global rules. So so trying to keep it clean and and above. Uh, cl- so so everything is uncluttered is part of the issue for us but on these issues it is my opinion that we should have some common ground uh on emissions we've got to have integrity around the science and i think you have uh, said enough today to uh explain to me that the integrity is missing in your country as well so i think if we can um at the end of this interview um we'll have a chat about building a, an alliance with us uh because we have people in new zealand that are willing to do that uh form form alliances with like-minded organizations but going just changing tack a little bit i mean we've also read about the stress on farmers in the netherlands and i read a headline that said there's one farmer suicide every 12 days uh that's one too many of course but is the anxiety that's being caused by all this the pri- or the environmental stuff the prime reason do you think yeah yeah of course i think it's the prime reason farmers are always used to work very hard long hours for little pay and sometimes they are lucky with the weather lucky with the climate and they have good pay but sometimes they're very unlucky and they have to um deal with the situation uh, a farmer is used to sit, sitting up all night to save an animal but he's always used also used to the fact that he don't save this animal and the next day he still have to feed the rest of the animals so farmers are used to this um yeah this negative side of their profession um, money is not the main thing of their, their thriving the is the passion for for their way of living and their their way of uh yeah, uh, contributing to 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 the whole system. Um, the only thing is that um, that's why you told me uh, in, in your introduction question of this question. You told me that um, uh, New Zealand from uh, 1985 is free of uh, a lot of uh, uh, government Absolutely. influence, actually, and uh, we are not. 
we are from i think i was born in 1986 so after that we were hanging on the government uh, for a big part of our money and i think this is a very bad thing because um it takes out the creativity of the of the of the entrepreneur you know if you uh, produce for a worldwide market and you know that the prices are down you will try to search a way that you can produce as cheap as you can as good as you can so you can make money but if the government uh, supports you with subsidies or money you will lose a little bit of this uh, creativity um so this is one thing of the problem the second thing is uh, you will do counteractive uh, measurements that are not not good for your farm but you do this because you want the subsidies and you need the subsidies so you do this um this is not good and healthy for uh, for your for your business but um the worst thing that i see in the young farmers eyes when i speak with them and i speak a lot with them i see the despair and the the sadness in their eyes when they speak about uh, the future because they are hit on by uh, legislation hit on by 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 uh, by the community and actually uh, mostly by the media that they are doing a bad job but they are doing actually an, an amazing job they are producing food for 98% of the country and even outside of the netherlands they are enjoying our food and um we are living in a world with so many people dying of hunger that the the most honorable job is the job of a farmer producing food for others and i should we should see proudness in their eyes but we see sadness and this is created by uh legislations uh pushed by government uh governments that act with no brain and uh, act for the worst of our countries well we have a lot in common in that uh in that side of it and i know that we have um sadly suicides happening in our own area uh yeah. it's it's not pleasant and um you know the saying is uh there's blood on the hands of these legislators yeah. and they don't don't seem to care but they they come out and share the country with uh and, and i don't mean to be disparate about this either but they share um uh mental health providers with money and they think that fixes it well the, the yeah. simple thing at the end of at the beginning of it would be to stop the legislative push that's creating the tensions and the pressures but um yeah so we do have a lot in common one thing i would like to know because i've never um, understood this do you get uh you know let's call it production subsidy or multi or, or environmental grants from your own government or do they come from the european union um gov the european government well, they, they mainly come from the European government. The European government, uh, in Europe, every European country has the right to have this money, but uh, the legislation are also very similar everywhere. So uh, it's actually European money. So the influence from Europe in this is very big, but the way they spend this money, there are also um, some subsidies can be a helpful for a farmer, you know, to, to modernize the farm or to change for the better. Uh, it can be helpful and useful to have some subsidies. And the European Union has those subsidies. But they're using this in, for example, at the moment, they are using this in more the eastern part of Europe. And the western part of Europe uh, pays for the, the things that they are doing in the east. Um, so, so this is not a good thing for for the Western farmers. It's not fair, I think. Um, but but first, I want. I, I actually, I'm sorry. I just uh, sometimes you tell me you say me things, and I really want to respond to that. 
Um, so if it's too much, just just tell me. Uh, but um, you you were talking about that you see this uh, the same problems in in, in New Zealand and um, uh, I think in in throughout Europe we have the same a lot of countries that we speak with they say yeah we have the same in, in the Netherlands and we see the protests in the Netherlands gave the farmers so much hope and so much uh, power and good feeling that um, uh, so that we we started now to uh, evolve our organization throughout Europe uh, uh, like. Three months ago, uh, the Belgium uh, part of Farmers Defense Force was founded, and we are working on the German part now, and uh, we're doing this throughout Europe. And I think um, if you watch at our logo, you can see that we have a very strong logo. I, I can show it on, uh, yeah. we, we are speaking now with cameras, so you can see yeah. it uh, maybe for, for the people that watch, uh, listen to your show, you can show the logo sometime. But um, this logo uh, is like a very proud logo. It's a, it's a defensive logo. The name is defensive. Uh, it's it's uh, the name is Farmers Defense Force. Um, farmers need force. They need they need protection. They need force. And um, the coherence uh, that our organization brought to young farmers, the proudness. There is no organization throughout the Netherlands that is selling so much shirts with logos as we are. It's really it's amazing. Farmers are so proud of wearing our logo that they, they go to school with this. The young farmers, I can tell you, we had some very sad moments and very uh, heartbreaking moments in our organization when when um, uh, young farmers died, uh, not not by suicide, just by accident or whatever, that, that parents call us if we please can send them a new shirt because they want to be buried in a shirt. This is This is touching. But it's also very strong. And I want to advise all countries throughout the world um, not join our organization whatsoever. We, we can talk about this is no problem. We, we, we are only doing things if it affects uh, positiveness throughout farmers. But uh, create collectivity on a strong base and do this not with money, not with do this with feeling because farmers are the most strong people I ever met in my life and you should use logos and you should lo uh, uh, use things like that to be a strong bond so that's what i want to share with you <laughs> let's let's try to uh, describe the logo just for the people so this the one i see on the website of the farmers defense force.nl it is it's got a white background it says this object is under the protection of farmers defense force and then are those two sickles there crossed no they are two uh, forks two um, forks uh, yeah Pay forks, actually, uh, for uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and it, this is um, yeah. Everybody can relate to that. Every farmer knows who, what is, uh, but it's also very defensive and a little bit aggressive, evenly. Um, and uh, people that are not farmer don't understand this. They feel this as threatening, and uh, we are not threatening nobody. But it's nice if you are threatened by a lot of people as a farmer that you feel something that you have a force, you know. That you are all together and you are strong, and uh, a lot of when you see we're going on the streets with tractors, they use the army to block us. They use the nation army to block our to go from going into the main capitals, but they didn't succeed because yeah. all the farmers stick together are way stronger than whatsoever. And um, this is what you can see in the happening in the Netherlands is a tiny country just with a minority of farmers, but we were still dominating the news worldwide. And why did we dominate the news? Not because the news was in favor of us, because they couldn't ignore, because it was so huge. Um, 
yeah, they tried to and filter, but they couldn't succeed. So uh, this logo uh, brings a lot of strength to the hearts of the farmers. And I never could could have think that it, it, it worked like that, but it works. It so, does. yeah. Well, I so, think brand, branding is fantastic. Uh, if you can get yeah. a brand that works and holds, it's great. I mean, I, 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 I acknowledge your brand. I looked at it before and I thought, gee, that is quite a powerful brand. It reminded me of Trident's actually, uh, you know, the devil's Trident. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, I know, I know the hay forks. Uh, interestingly, uh, though, when I saw a guy, Jerome, uh, Jerome, I think, or Jeron, uh, with his red necktie, um, on on a Facebook page talking about uh, the things that were going on in the Netherlands. And then I realized that the red uh, necktie, or you may call it something else, was scarf, more yeah. symbolic. What do you call it? Yeah, the red scarf, you know, the handkerchief. Yeah, yes, this, yeah, yeah, the handkerchief. Yeah, it's quite symbolic. And um, tell us about what that means as well, because, again, it's a brand that I think uh, took off for me anyway. Yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, first of all, you, you name uh, you, you mentioned the name of Jeroen. Uh, Jeroen is Jeroen van Manen. Uh, he was a, a former member of our staff or of our uh, uh, board, um, but he decided to go his own path or change. Uh, um, yeah, don't uh, follow uh, our strategies anymore. So this is uh, we are still in close contact, and he's actually uh, very uh, good in spreading out the word, and so that we are very proud of this. Um, this handkerchief is actually, um, um, yeah, this is a strong symbol as well. You know, some of the organizations were not happy to share the logo, but the logo is a little bit aggressive. So politics were scared of this and this brought a lot of strength, but also um, is uh, scaring off some of the organization because they were scared to, to show off with this logo. So um, the farmers and we decided it was strong if we give them something that is less uh, aggressive, but more recognizable. So this handkerchief is like uh, all traditional colors of the Dutch uh, farming. So we, we um, yeah, we, we, the last action that we had was that we, we handed out more than 600,000 of those handkerchiefs throughout the Netherlands. Um, we buy them uh, and we just give them for free to to anybody that want to wear them. People put them on the the mirrors of their cars. They put them on the inside their cars. They wear them to work. And the, every time we go abroad with our organization, the last time we went, for example, to Poland, uh, we were in Poland on the parliament, the shame in Poland. It's the parliament, Polish parliament. We spoke with a lot of politicians there, even with the president of Poland. And we gave them on the on the on the media, you know, they, we were in front of the cameras. We gave him this handkerchief. We asked him if he was supporting Dutch farmers and if he was, he should wear this around his wrist. And there's no ch chance for a politician if you do it like that that he will not do this. They all do this because yeah, <laughs> they can't do nothing. But those pictures and those images, they go worldwide. They go everywhere. Oh. And. So this red handkerchief uh, is is like the protest uh, uh, image worldwide, and we're still using this, and uh, it's very strong. It's a fantastic concept, and I, I Jasper, I think uh, New Zealand needs to do something similar. We've got an organisation in New Zealand, the Splinter Group, sort of you might say, called Groundswell, and they are um, different from the old mainstream organisations, and they've got their own branding, but. You know, perhaps there's something like this might be an idea they need to pick up. Um, 
Uh, it's a bit like well, if, they, if I can break into this, uh, we have now a special program that if people want to uh, get involved in, in something uh, similar as Farmers Defense Force, uh, they can contact us and we can help them build this in their uh, their own country and they have full free uh, freedom of speech and freedom of acting everything. But we, we just want to grow bigger as a as a as a group, you know. Fabulous. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a win for us tonight. Uh, um, Jasper, sorry, I should say today, <laughs> tonight, whatever. Um, time zones all the way. Time zones, I'm glad we crazy. finally got us sorted. But uh, you've got you've got young children, Joss, and uh, they. I mean, as a parent, one obviously looks to you know what they'll be doing. I have young children. My children are six and eight, and my son. You anytime you ask him, it it is farming for him. Nothing else. This is all they've grown up doing. But uh, kids here are also getting it another education so we have this whole push for insect proteins and it is mm -hmm. coming into the whole sustainability thing is coming into schools and it has a certain flavor a certain flavor which is i very clearly find it anti-farming and i see that the dutch king opened the world's largest insect farm at Fortex in 2019 you also have one of a, a insect university set up a school or at least on its website it says insectengineers.com and we are insect engineers creating the first school and commercial farming of black soldier fly what what is going on there you it is just the same tactics world over aren't they yeah well um yeah, some, sometimes uh, I can't spin my head around what's going on, but I always try to to um, uh, to break it down to logical. Uh, it's not a, it's not as easy as it sounds, but um, for we, we have two parts of your question. The first part is um, the children on the schools. Um, uh, there's a lot of NGOs that uh, make schooling systems. And they uh, give this for free to schools, um, mm. and this has a major effect because they are. Uh, it's not healthy. Uh, it's not good if you go into the minds of young people uh, with false information, uh, with uh, incomplete information, and um, this is very poisoning to the society. I think. Um, so I think uh, the old agriculture organizations we have throughout the Netherlands uh, um, should have done something about this the last decades, but they didn't. So we are now trying to do something about this by setting up our own programs and also contributing financially to programs that are in favor of farmers and doing exactly the opposite as they are doing. Um, uh, I think we will win this at the end because um, uh, we have the truth on our side. Um, so it's easier to tell something, uh, a trustworthy story than uh, a lie. So mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the story, we will win this. Um, but for the insect uh, uh, part of your question, we have a, a second problem, I think. Um, we have fake milk in the Netherlands. We have fake meat in the Netherlands. We have fake everything. Um, the problem is that uh, this fake, uh, fake um, things are... Um, pretty profitable for the people that sell them and make them. Because if you make a milk protein or you make a meat protein, there is a certain amount of costs that be never can be taken away. An animal has to be fed and you can try to do this as cheap as possible, but it still has to be fed. So um, the, the cost price of meat and milk will always be at a certain level. It will never get lower. But if you, for example, you make fake uh, hamburgers with fake meat, 
you can use so many products to 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 fill up this hamburger you can use uh, tapioca but if tapioca gets too too expensive because the tapioca farmers needs to have a living as well they can say to this tapioca farmer okay this year we don't buy anything from you just uh, eat your own tapioca and we will just uh, put in uh, rapeseed or rapeseed or whatever so they are very flexible in producing this hamburger and they the, the, the cost of producing a hamburger is the same as the cost of producing a liter Coca-Cola. It's just add some sugar, add some additives, and you have a product that you can sell for several euros and the production costs were low. As we go to fresh products like milk and meat and eggs and cheese, those products are sold to the consumer for just a little bit higher than the production costs. So there is not the, the, the in-between traders are not making a lot of, of course, they make enough money because they still make more money than the farmers, mm -hmm. but they don't make extremely amount of money. So the problem there is that the cheap products like insects, like fake meat, like fake milk or whatsoever, they make a lot of money for the producers. So, um, and yeah, poverty is on the lower for a lot of countries throughout Europe. And I think even in the Netherlands, people are uh, having uh, a hard time paying their milk and paying their paying their good, healthy food. So they will change to cheap foods. So this is an ongoing problem. Yeah, yeah. None, none of this is easy. But, uh, you know, the evolution, I've always said the evolution of ideas um, will either take us to a better place uh and well it always seems to take us to a better place in the end so let's hope uh fads go come and go um maybe it's a fad maybe it's a passing phase don't know but uh you know um we're we're talking about what we do and we do it very well and you do it very well as well and that is produce protein uh and carbohydrates or whatever uh from farming tell me we need to wrap up pretty soon but What's the circuit breaker? Uh, what's what's the uh, deal breaker uh, for you and your organizations and uh, your like-minded people uh, with regard to the government of the Netherlands? I mean, if 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 the Rutter government gets back in and and gets dominance again, will he force your hand and start to expropriate these properties? Do you think and just take them, just just take them and close them down? Well, the question uh, is actually, what is the deal breaker? What's the circuit breaker? When mm. when are we going to 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 not accept this anymore? Uh, well, uh, as shown worldwide, we're not accepting it already. What's going on? But uh, for us, uh, freedom is at stake. Um, uh, if a farmer is not having any children to 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 take over the farm or whatsoever, and he's willing to sell his farm, and he sells his farm to government because the government wants to decline farmers in the country. This is fraud, no deal breaker at all. This is no problem because um, why should we? It's a free, it's a free world, and if somebody wants to sell his farm, and the government is able uh, because the, the 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 majority of the community wants to do this, like the government wants. They vote for them, so okay, we it's democratic, so they can do. Uh, we don't care, um, but as long it's if it's on a voluntary base, it should be voluntary. Um, and what is happening now that they circle um, uh, farms, they say, okay, it's a voluntary legislation. You can say no if you don't want to sell the farm to the government. You can say no at this point, but but there's no nobody else that want to buy your farm ever again 
and there's also nobody else that want to take over and there's no bank investing any money in your your farm as well because your farm is marked by the government as so should be sold to the government so it's already not voluntary anymore. So uh, we are opposing to this a lot. Um, and you say um, that what, what should we do or happen if Ruta will get into the chamber again, into the parliament again? Well, the next month until November, we will do everything available in our bodies and in our minds to fight the fact that he will come back in the chamber. And I think we will win this because in the last moment, he just said that he will never go back into Dutch politics again. Uh, so we will, we, we are uh, rid of Rutte. Uh, this is uh, very good for the country, very good news for the farmers. Um, but there will be new uh, politicians that will um, try to um, yeah, continue this red race to the bottom. Uh, we will do everything to fight this, and we will never accept. Fantastic, uh, good, good, good stuff. Just going back a little bit before we finish, you mentioned um, the World Economic Forum a little, uh, a little while ago. Um, was Mark Rutter uh, one of the young global leaders uh, way back? Was he part of that 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 cabal? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, he's very close to them. He's uh, he's like. Um, uh, Trudeau, you know, and uh, some of the world leaders are very close with this organization. <laughs> and actually, um, Rutte is the best example we have worldwide because he's like number one in this organization as a brand. Oh, we thought we had that person here. <laughs> no, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we no, are I, I, thought, I thought it was Jacinda Adam, but isn't it, isn't it uh, amazing? So you guys, you're responsible for less than half a percent of the world's gross emissions. We in New Zealand are responsible for less than a quarter of a percent of the world's gross yeah. emissions. We are being hammered. Tells yeah. a lot, doesn't it? It it makes no sense. And yet they are willing to completely destroy us, you know. As I keep telling uh, who to whosoever would listen, we need to stop looking for a reason and treason. Stop calling these people stupid or these policies silly. They know exactly what they are doing. And I'm so glad you guys are fighting back. Those pitchforks might just come in handy, Joss, real soon. Real soon. <laughs> and and Jaspreet has another line, Joss, called comply till you die. Uh, and, um, you know, you're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let it happen. No. There are people in New Zealand, uh, you know, I'm my, my farming career is at its end, but... Um, yeah, you know, we need to stand up for our successes and and your generation because, uh, as you alerted to early, the older organisations have let you down. They've let you down, and uh, and it's it's only young, new, inventive ideas that are going to stand up now. And uh, I'm I'm really grateful we've managed to get you on at such short notice, and you've given us an hour of your time. And uh, if we can do anything to um, th- Hopefully, our groundswell organization may have, uh, may may just have got some ideas out of this discussion if they listen to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so. well um, I don't know if we're wrapping up, but um, I, I want to uh, say something to all of the listeners and also to the organization listening and uh, to 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 the both of you as well that you should be really uh, protective to uh, what's in the heads of the young farmers because. Um, all the negativeness is breaking down their passion. And uh, if you lose your passion, you lose everything. So uh, that's why I just hammer as much on the logo and then everything, because this is bringing proud, prideness and 
proud feeling into their hearts again. And uh, this is what young farmers need. They be, they, they, we sell, for example, we sell the stickers uh, of Farmers Defense for very nice, beautiful stickers that you can put on the tractor. They are huge. But we, we thought, yeah, maybe they will not use them. But they are sold like mega because farmers are proud when they have this sticker on their cabin that they are a member of the group. You know, they are involved. And uh, this proudness makes them feel strong when they're driving their machines and working on the fields and working with their animals. So this this pride should be in their hearts forever. And you can uh, do something to 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 make this stronger. Yeah, well, look, fantastic. The owner-operator is in my heart, and uh, it sounds like uh, seriously in the hearts of of the people you represent. And, you know, it's it's easy to be a big player, a big corporate, and, you you know, you just sort of have your own brand and you just trample over the owner-operator. But um, good to know you're fighting back. I think there's enough uh, groundswell in New Zealand to fight back as well. So we're grateful to have you on and uh, we're going to keep watching your progress. Uh, you're very visible in, in media. So, um, yeah, all the best for the future. And thanks for coming on RCR Greenwash today. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio Greenwash with Don and Jaspreet. Now, wasn't that a great interview with Joss? Uh, he's got everything at his fingertips he was so articulate he knows exactly what his motives are and what his agenda is and he's doing it for his people which is um you know the whole team he's got behind him are very active and you know it's hard to believe that we don't have that sort of commitment in new zealand to follow up uh day in day out the issues that face us and as much as i give groundswell a lot of kudos for their efforts in recent years they really do have to keep the pressure on uh if they're going to make a difference for for new zealand farmers and for new zealand in general so we can take back uh what we what we what we owe own and um really control our destiny better than we're allowed to currently but uh what did you make of it uh jasper joss knows who has enemy is Tom. Mm -hmm. he knows who his enemy is and that's the first step in fighting a war exactly like uh, the speaker we had uh, last week Kathleen Marquardt from the US uh, at the American Policy Center her first uh, deposition that I sort of saw uh, was from 1995 unabashedly calling out the enemy in no uncertain terms I still think Many in New Zealand do not know what they are fighting. They seem to think National will come back to power or ACT is going to save them. Yet National, ACT, Labour, Greens, Maori Party will all be sitting in Parliament. The last week of September, when Ashley Bloomfield gives an address on advancing Agenda 2030 in New Zealand to our representatives. So knowing your enemy, and uh, not giving an inch 
Of course, uh, they'll say that uh, Parliament's not in session then, and there is no uh, <laughs> Parliament, so they, they're not not relevant on September 30. But isn't it amazing how you highlight that? Uh, and it, it, it's all around us, and no one wants to know. So, uh, yep, Joss and his team, fantastic. I like the idea of branding. Now, we had the Yellow Vest campaign in, in France a few years ago, and now we've got the uh, red bandana or the red scarf that uh, mm. the Dutch are putting around their their uh, neck or even uh, draping it around their wrist. So things that are symbolic. I think that's what's missing in New Zealand. We do need to have something that's a bit more symbolic. Now, I'm not going to tell Groundswell how to, um, to play their cards, but I think they do need to have something that brands them like that. Yeah. I think it's a great initiative. The uh, Indian farmers protest, they had an orange one. And yeah. orange is one of the colors in the Indian flag. So they all had, if it was Punjab, they had an orange turban, otherwise an orange bandana or a scarf or something orange hanging from their tractors. Mm. Mm. Well, and, 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 and in the Netherlands, they were putting their flag upside down for a while as well. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they're so well coordinated. And as he was saying um, to us, there's... There's no need for it to interfere in your day-to-day workload on a farm. You can make sure you do this protest uh, uh, outside of effectively your core part of your day. So they're really coordinated. And I did uh, say to uh, his his cohort, one of his cohort, uh, I think is standing for parliament. So who knows? Uh, things could evolve there because, boy, the Dutch parliament does seem to be a bit all over the shop with factions. I still haven't got my head around the factions that are there. I dare say if New Zealand played with so many factions, we would um we would get into trouble. Yeah, but here's the here's the issue. We've got beef and lamb, New Zealand dairy and Z and feds and, and others. And they all hunting as a pack. Now here I am sort of shooting myself in the foot. They hunt as a pack and they they let their owners down. So uh maybe you are better to have these um sort of firebrands on the fringes. Keeping the wood there's on a, there's, there's a place for everyone. You know, mm. there's the moderates, conservatives, mm. you're more out there in your face people. And who am like who am I to say what what works at, at this point? Anything goes. And you know, the greenwashing is not just in rural space. You have people now protesting bike lanes, nobody listens. You have let's get Wellington costs rising up, nobody cares. You've got, I just saw that article on uh, that the Just Transitions team of 13 people who are focused on decarbonizing Southland mm-hmm. after post Tiwai, you know, uh, future, and Taranaki after uh, all the exploration bans are costing $1.4 million a year, 13 people. Mm-hmm. All of this, where where is the money going? What is going on? But it, it still seems to continue. And just as we spoke to Joss about, and he 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 can see it, one has to follow the money here. One has to follow the money. So what would you do if you were Prime Minister come uh, October 14? What would you do? Uh, I know what I'd be doing. Uh, I wouldn't be popular, but I would be doing a, um, a root and branch review of every government department and every quango right down to the bottom tier. Mm. So we saw where every dime was being spent because we actually have to rein in uh, unnecessary spending at all levels of governance in this country and all the 
uh, little entities that are sort of feeding themselves out of grants and the like. That all has to be put on the table, and we would see billions of dollars of waste in this country. These billions that they spend on diversity, greenwashing, climate stories, and all that nonsense. I mean, I, I saw the ad sector in August has launched Ad Net Zero. Mm. <laughs> the ad sector responses to climate emergency with the launch of Sustainability Initiative. And uh, it's, again, a plan that supports this effort again, transition to net zero for a $3.4 billion industry. And they're even talking about the fact that, uh, you know, we have uh, those junkets or ad award evenings and all, and there's emissions in that transport of, you know, award winners, delegates, or other people who are uh, the who's who showing up and the catering and all of these. So all of that should possibly be stopped. Will these bureaucrats stop these junkets? Who knows? Well, it's, it stimulates the economy, all that sort of stuff, doesn't it? It absolutely um, makes the money go round. Uh, mm-hmm. Interestingly, there was the um, Diversity Works uh, Awards this week, <laughs> or this last week. Unbelievable. That organisation I didn't know existed, but there you go. It's uh, been around since about 1992. It's got a budget of a couple of million. It's got hundreds of partners uh, many well-known businesses in our community, Jasper, um, all all endorsing this sort of stuff. And you do wonder what the achievement is out of it all. Divide, I mean, and, divide and ruled on while well, wasting public money. Have I have never seen New Zealand this divided on racial lines and tensions simmering. I have not in the last 15 years. And But to put it very simply, what would be the ultimate nightmare of a government? It would be a united people, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's quite good to have some diverse opinions, uh, <laughs> but not diversity the way we're talking about it now. Yeah, not token yeah. diversity, diversity of thought. You can't have a society that all thinks exactly the same. Otherwise, you are those little boxes. Um, of uh, ticky-tacky. Ticky-tacky. And, uh, and, you know, communism and socialism is not ideal. So we do need to have diverse thought processes and we do need to have a diverse economy but all this hand-holding that's going on on the fringes here is starting to bother me and it's i have to say jasper i knew nothing of this uh really it just didn't spin my wheels until um, people like you have been able to put it in front of me and i think what the heck is going on here and i tell my kids this stuff and sort of they think oh come on dad you're just a bit bit out of out of whack you're not on on on, uh, on the same wavelength, but slowly they're getting it, that this it, stuff is all pervasive. It is getting right right down to their kids. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, their little kids that are preschool. Unbelievable, the stuff they're being uh, uh, bombarded with, subliminally, but, and sometimes more obviously, but unbelievable. You know, in 2021, when Jacinta and uh, Round Robertson they beamed into this uh, Auckland kids junket called the Little Gay Out. Oh, I was amazed. I was amazed. So these t- these young children need a you know from the big day gay out. It's it's to the little gay out. When, and where are we on the OECD rankings of reading, writing, the three R's? And why are kids that young who actually oh. have no prejudice because they don't even know this stuff? 
No. Why do you need to start that early? I, I don't think so. When you've got, um, yeah, there's a book that you showed me called Lumber James, not Lumberjacks. <laughs> this one's Lumber James. And then we have one called King and King and one and Queen and Queen and and Tango makes three. I mean, all these sorts of things are one here called George. Um, yeah, George anyway. is a mer- mermaid, merman. Something. Oh, no, there's another one. Yeah, that's another one you showed me. Oh, gosh. I'm scrolling but, through. You know, last last Christmas, John, so much for this ESG and DEI. Uh, yeah. Kids and I went into warehouse for something because uh, the warehouse stationery has been now merged into the other warehouse in Invercargill. So I had to go into the blasted place. And uh, there was the little drummer boy with fairy wings behind him. Yes, I remember that. I, uh, it was uh, everywhere in the red shirt. Uh, and Jul- Julian is a mermaid. That's the one. That's the next one. So, sorry, we've gone around in circles here. Diversity works and right through to this um, sort of grooming of our children. But, but this it's, is, it, they are all thinking alike, aren't they? It's the are, same thing. I see the exact same thing in the, during the COVID narrative, the same yeah. thing during the climate narrative. And you know what is driving this? This The Forever Project. That stuff launched in 2020 mm-hmm. as a part of the commitment to the robust coverage of the challenges of covering the challenges of climate change and sustainability. And then they began these climate action report cards for different businesses. Now, how how is it the media's job here? Mm-hmm. They're obviously being paid for this. We now have ad net zero. Then we have this uh, website called coveringclimatenow.org. They say what is about us. We help our news media colleagues to cover the defining story of our time with the rigor and urgency deserves. Defining story, it's climate change. So if listeners, you go to coveringclimatenow.org, go to the Partners tab and click on Partners list. The page opens in front of you. Don't bother yourself too much. Just do a search on the page for the word Zealand because <laughs> it's, it's still not out here over here. It's still Zealand. So I searched for Zealand and I found 11 New Zealand companies, media houses are a part of covering climate now, do you know, because we can't get away with greenwashing and 24-7 climate hysteria pumped us, us children. Everyone likes a news hub, RNZ. TVNZ One News, the New Zealand Herald, Otago Times, Wanaka Sun, The Conversation, the spin-off, newsroom stuff. Everyone is a part of this. I mean, uh, you know, can't really blame them. There is, the website says 500 plus news partners and 2 billion is the reach of our partners. So that is the readership. 57 countries represented and cost of membership zero. And at the base of that page, yeah, at the base of that page is, a, is all the institutions. And the one that you need to go to predominantly, uh, one, go to all of them <laughs> and fill your <laughs> boots because you'll be very depressed by the end of it. But one is Columbia University Center on uh, Global Energy Policy and just track, your, track your way through that. It's here raising stuff. And as I said earlier in the show, I think the alarmist rhetoric uh, it's emanating from all these all these entities here is about a thousand to one. You don't get much skeptical commentary because you're outnumbered by all the people on this page. And of course, we just saw in the last week how TV One, uh, TVNZ, and stuff were paid 
300,000 for one lot and 200,000 for the other uh, to put out climate uh, alarmist uh, programming and, and, and opinion pieces. So, you know, that's the indoctrination that's going on, listeners. Uh, you're paying for it and you aren't getting both sides of the story unless you listen to RCR, Reality <laughs> Check Radio. Or, yeah, you, you just start doing a bit more digging and seeing where this consensus is coming from. Dawn and I today are privileged to welcome on a repeat guest. In fact, uh, our uh, very first guest that we had on, Dawn. Yeah, Barry Brill uh, from the from Whangarei. Uh, he's a former cabinet minister way back in 80s and early 90s. And uh, he's been a professional director in many companies in the energy sector specifically. But yeah, Barry's chairman of the uh, New Zealand Climate Science Coalition. He's a very thorough thinker. He doesn't waste his words on uh, uh, being perhaps as alarming as I would be or wanting to be so radical, but uh, he puts up his case. And one thing he does, he goes goes after David Frame, the uh, guru on methane in New Zealand, who, in, in my opinion, is um, letting himself down by not being willing to listen to other physicists of the world. Because uh, on one side of the equation, David does a good job. But because he, uh, he, he even says ag is holding the candle for the rest of New Zealand's emissions unfairly. And that's absolutely right. So uh, Barry has a big discussion about that. And then he goes on to talk about these institutions we've just talked about that are feeding the world with the alarmist propaganda. But, so, you know, should we should we even worry too much, Don? You know, we're already 159th place out of 160. Yeah. One yeah. more drop down the IMF ratings for, uh, you know, a declining yeah. economy. Doesn't perhaps really that, make much of a difference. Perhaps that job is done. Perhaps that job is done. <laughs> right, yo. So, uh, without any further ado, we will be back in a moment with Barry Brill. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. This is Greenwatch with Just Breathe and Don. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio members and join now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, remember to keep that feedback coming in, uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio or text 2057. And boy, have we had uh, a lot of interaction over our five or six months on air. Um, we're bringing back our very first guest for round two tonight. His name is Barry Brill. You may remember we had a very long interview with him right at day one. I said to Barry earlier that uh, hopefully we've improved our lot since then and uh, the sound quality is a whole lot better. So <laughs> let's rip into it. But you all remember that Barry's a, a former National Party MP from um, oh, about the 1980s and 90s. He's got a um, Master of Commercial Law. He's got a Master of Law with Honours. And he's had a wide-ranging career in many fields like uh, energy and electricity, uh, you know, petroleum and, and, and uh, energy companies. And I know he's a very well-traveled man. Um yeah, I know he's got a bucket list. He's almost knocked knocked the bastard off, as Hillary would say. So, Barry, welcome back to uh, Greenwashed. And we're going to start today with a bit of news that's gone into our rural rags recently. Um, it's uh, interesting. It's been hard to get any information from Dr. Frame, uh, David Frame, in the uh, 
in the media, but Farmers Weekly this week, oh, sorry, last week has just put that uh, article together called Tackling Methane Myths Across the Spectrum. And in it, uh, not only is there the uh, press statement, there is also uh, an interview that is on an audio podcast. So Dr. Frame posits a whole lot of stuff, but he doesn't doesn't tell us much. He gives us a whole lot of opinion, but you and he pushes around a few uh, ideas and besmirches the character of some senior uh, scientists in the world. Um, what do you think? What have you, what have you uh, what's your assessment of that article? Well, good to be here, Don. Uh, I uh, I think it's the curate's egg. There, uh, he makes a couple of good points, uh, and then I think he makes a couple of very bad points. So, uh, if I could just start with the quote that he of this sentence that he uses, he says, "We actually have a target in New Zealand." that would imply that we are no longer warming the planet by about 2035. Uh, and, in fact, we're undoing some of the warming we've created by the time we get to 2050. Now, that's an important point which hasn't been emphasised very much. It relies on the fact that the New Zealand overstates the warming done by methane by a factor of seven. Uh, that's not controversial. Uh, that seems to be agreed all around, but nobody actually does anything about it. Now, if you apply uh, the science and reduce that warming by the uh, by its over-calculation, uh, then our targets for 2050 are actually achieved by 2035. So we are way out in front of the world because we are being over-ambitious in trying to reduce uh, figures for our warming that are overstated. Now, uh, it's David Frame, of course, has to take some credit for the fact, a lot of credit for the fact, that uh, we now know that it's overstated to the, by the extent of uh, seven times what it should should be. That's if you believe it does any harm at all. So, Barry, could I just interrupt there? Um, we know the IPCC has said that it overstates its warming potential by three to four times. You're saying by a factor of seven. Um, is that what you mean? Can you explain that? Uh, yes, I probably should accept it's a factor of four and right. down from 28 yes, to 7. Yes, okay. Uh, I, I think a factor of 7 is is probably more accurate. However, yeah, I, what has been accepted by the United Nations is that it should not be 28, but it should be 7. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, our figures, like this 2050, uh, the budgeting for the 2050 uh, um, zero by 2050 objective uh, we are way over budgeting uh, and way overstating everything. Uh, now, just but, one. Sorry, I, I was going to say, uh, but you have made a comment in one of your other articles, and I should say, Barry is the chairman of the Climate Science Coalition in New Zealand. I, I omitted that at the start. Um, you've even written that um, if if everything uh, was fair and equal, the GWP for methane would be about one. Um, 
Yeah. And so your, your argument that it's overstated by a factor of seven, we could easily argue it's overstated by a factor of 28. Um, so look, let's just play with the IPCC stuff as you're doing right now. It's still significant. Right. Well, uh, the point that Frame is making, mm. uh, and Professor Frame was a uh, was one of the team of scientists who first found this overcounting, uh, and the point he's making is that it has a whole lot of results, including the fact that what we are targeting, we talk about 2015, but what we are really targeting is only 2035, which we should not be doing. So that's a good point that he makes, mm. uh, and. A, um, a second point he, he makes is that because we have uh, steady-state livestock numbers, then our agricultural methane is not causing any warming whatever, right? Because uh, for every molecule that goes into the air, a molecule explodes from eight or nine years ago. Uh, and we won't be adding to any warming unless we increase our livestock numbers, which is not on the cards. So he's saying that if farmers are now going to be required to reduce their methane, that means they're going to have to be, not to be causing no warming, but to be actually offsetting what the rest of New Zealand does. Uh, because the rest of New Zealand can continue this frame for the next 30 years, increasing its warming by uh, emitting CO2, but they're calling upon farmers to not only stay plateaued, but to actually reduce the warming and so to cross-subsidise the rest of New Zealand. Uh, and I... I've read Frame saying that before, and I think it's an excellent point. It's also the point that uh, uh, the uh, his Oxford colleague makes, is that uh, although the media presented that New Zealand is, um, uh, that the farmers are causing a large proportion of New Zealand warming, in fact, because it's a, uh, there's no increase in livestock, we're not adding to the global warming any anything at all. Uh, and if the farmers are then required to reduce, then that's simply going to subsidise the increases that are being undertaken in the urban areas. Yes, so he so gets that right. He does get that right. That's the point that Prime makes as yeah. well. Hmm? He does get that right, Barry. He does get that right. But... Um, yeah, we get you get down into the minutiae and it really does start to confuse everybody. And sorry, that's what we have to do to try and break this out. It seems quite awkward um, that um, Dr. Frame posits all this stuff in this in this email and he still doesn't give any attribution where you can find what he's done. But he then goes on to besmirch the character of um, some very well-known uh, uh, physicists. Yeah, I, I was disappointed in that. I thought it was pretty unworthy. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he says he doesn't like rural people listening to Tom Sheehan, but he's he's just pouting. You know, he he, he, I, he doesn't say why he doesn't like them listening to Tom, but I presume it's because he doesn't agree with Tom, and that seems to be a good enough reason. Uh, for Dave Frame to say he's disappointed that other people are listening to what Tom Sheehan had to say. But he then goes on 
to say that Tom Sheehan was quoting research by a couple of physicists from the United States who don't really have a record of doing a lot of climate change research. Well, now, that's, that's an appalling argument. Uh, it's, a, it's essentially a boastful claim that I do more research than, uh, than these two physicists in the United States. It's not unsupported by any evidence or anything other than the fact that Frame is more boastful than others, and he says, I'm smarter than they are. Well, <laughs> it's pretty easy to respond to that. Uh, so I'm just going to have a look at the uh, CV of the man who Dave Frame says that he's smarter than. And this is uh, Will Happer, uh, Dr. William Happer, a Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physics at Princeton University. Now, Princeton is a, is a well-regarded university, well-known all over. Will Happer joined the Princeton Physics Department in 1980. So he's been there for 40 years. He's become a renowned professor. His particular specialty is radiation physics, which is what climate change is all about, atmospheric radiation. Uh, he's published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers. He's a fellow, and this is a, a considerable honour. In fact, he has a whole string of awards and the like, but he's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now, unlike most other scientists, uh, highly regarded uh, physics professors, he knows quite a bit about the real world and the world of politics. And he served as the Director of Energy Research under the first President Bush from 1991 to 1993. Uh, he also served as Chairman of the Steering Committee in Jason from 1987 to 1990. That was under Bill Clinton. And Jason is the group of scientists who advised the White House and the Pentagon on matters of science which are critical uh, to policy making but are not necessarily in the public domain. Then he served again uh, as Deputy Assistant to the President in the Trump White House and was the Chief Science Advisor to the National Security Council. Now, this is a man who towers over Dave Frame. And I really think Dave is uh, very unwise to get into a dick-measuring contest with Will Happer. He doesn't give any reasons why he thinks he's smarter than Will, but uh, I, I will offset that. So I'm going to completely rebut what Dave's argument was by simply saying that I believe Will Happer is way smarter than Dave Frame. Right. And the evidence supports me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it does seem that there's something not right in the New Zealand political sphere uh, where we have one uh, guy sort of, you might say, putting New Zealand farmers 
partially under the bus uh, or fully under the bus. It's just he, he supports a tax. So therefore, he supports a know your number. He supports a regime. And we've got a piece of paper here that he presented in Invercargill at a, at a function last year. It's a graph that talks about G, GWP star properly reflects warming. And a colleague who's not uh, unknown to a lot of us, uh, Peter Foster, has come up with uh, his analysis of that graph. And it shows that the temperature increase of over, over 100 years by New Zealand livestock is four millionth of one degree. And this is coming off the graph that Dr. Frame put up in Invercargill, or in fact, 1.8 thousandth of a degree uh, in uh, from 1850 to 2100, 250 years. So what, what the hell is going on, Barry? Look, we've had 25 years of this. And you know, Dr. Frame is saying people like me have uh, no no knowledge. We don't read much. We don't um, we don't uh, you know we, we shouldn't be making these assertions. Well, twenty five years of being beaten around the bush. I think it deserves some integrity, and that's what I hope all this discussion gets to and gets to very quickly because you know we're under we're under serious uh, financial predicaments in this country in, in terms of not just farming, but economically the whole country. And we've got scientists that are willing to uh, sort of say, look, we'll have a tax here and we'll get better access to markets. I mean, even in this article, he talks like he's a trade negotiator and that really bugs me. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, anyway. I find the lines getting really blurred. If a researcher yeah. should just stay in their lane, they're doubling in everything, right from a tax to public policy to virtually peddling Hivaka Ekanoa. How don't the lines get blurred? For me, I, I really think the two should have been kept separate. But here we are just completely mudding the waters and having no problem casting aspersions on, uh, you know, characters of some very eminent physicists. It also is surprising to me how these people can make claims. Uh, I saw reports from the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment saying that this is exactly, this is New Zealand's, you know, contribution to warming thanks to our livestock numbers. Now, when you look at the world's biggest producer and consumer of dairy, that's India, no one can very reasonably guess what is the total livestock number in, in India, number of ruminants. You don't have a national herd scheme. It varies from anything from 450 million to 650 million, depending on which Indian government database you choose to look at. And yet, New Zealand must go where the angels fear to tread. I, I don't know. We, we excel at being lab rats and we have no problems, no qualms at all being the world first, even if it means committing economic suicide. Well, a, a lot of this, I mean, the, the, the argument that we have added four millionths of a degree <laughs> uh, is the type of thing that we we hear from the propagandists uh, thousandths of a degree here, hundredth of a degree there. These things are not detectable, right? They uh, no. maybe they come up on a blackboard when you do a lot of maths or on your um, uh, on your calculator screen. But in the real world, there is no such thing as four millionths of a degree, uh, <laughs> and um, I uh, I think uh, Dave Frame. Uh, is, well, 
I'm I'm very critical of him criticizing other scientists whom he hasn't read or hasn't uh, uh, certainly hasn't studied. Uh, when he then after after criticizing Will Happer by saying that he's that Dave Dave Frame claims that he's that I'm better than Will Happer, well that's a matter of opinion. Uh, but r- really, let's see what he does about Will Happer's arguments uh, and the arguments that were uh, uh, conveyed very well by Tom Sheehan, who was visiting New Zealand fairly recently. Now, what Frame has to say about that is that we've taken all that into account and I'm quoting him, most of the effects that they have assumed are not accounted for are in fact factored in. We also, we do know about clouds and the difference between cloudy sky radiation and clear sky radiation and all those things. Well, that isn't what Happer and Weingarten are on about. It isn't what Tom Sheehan was on about. He wasn't talking about clouds. He was talking about the difference between real-world air and laboratory air. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laboratory air is uh, desiccated, all the uh, water vapor is taken out of it because they want to have constant conditions to to do their experiment. So under those conditions, you get a certain result. You get a different result when you go to the real world. Now, how do we know what you get when you go to the real world? Well, you can only know that by looking at the data. Uh, and that's exactly what Happer and Weingarten do in, uh, in huge detail, in, in massive detail. Uh, and Dave Frame obviously hasn't read any of their papers. He, he doesn't even know that we are talking about the impact of water vapour uh, not the impact of clouds. So he, he's not within a million miles of uh, of um, coming to grips with the argument that Tom Sheehan was making and making some attempt to rebut it. So I think it's fair to say that there's no rebuttal whatever in what Frame has said. Frame has said he's disappointed that people are listening to Tom Sheehan and he thinks he's smarter than Will Happer. And when it comes to the actual science, he's got nothing to say, except he talks about clouds. Uh, and, of course, we're not talking about clouds. So, so, so Barry, I'm sorry to interrupt. It, it seems that at the end of all this, there's a bit of face-saving going on because the narrative in New Zealand has been X. We're now trying to make X a little less than it was, a little like a small X now, but we need to still be seen to show that what we were advising the government was correct. But um, I know and you know that um, Dr. Frame has also sent a letter to the Minister for Climate Change saying that it's disingenuous to uh, be using the GWP metric of 28 um, today for New Zealand's uh, climate change policy. It's disingenuous because the IPCC have said so. So Dave Frame on one hand is sort of saying the right thing, but he's not willing to go all the way. And so it seems to me that beef and lamb or dairy and Z, 
you know, and I'm speaking from a farmer lobbyist point of view, have spent a lot of money on this character to talk to the farmers in the way they have. And there's there's a bit of, yeah, look, let's there's a 50-50 call going on here and it could fall either way. And there's this there is something to see. There is something to see. And farmers can't grab hold of it yet, but we're trying to. And I'm hoping um, post-election or even leading up to the election, we might get some better clarity because I'm aware that, for instance, um, and Jas Breitz highlighted this, that we're up for about $370 million worth of of carbon costs by, was it 2035, Jas Breitz? If we, yeah, yeah, because the IMF if, says we need to double the price of carbon. That's just come out this week that we need to double the price of carbon literally because otherwise we won't meet our 2030 commitments. So, yeah, self-destruct uh, or else. And we already have, I think, the biggest current round account deficit in the OECD. Yeah, it's, it's tough. <laughs> well, well it, it, it'll only get worse. Uh, uh, Professor Frame, along with Adrian Macy, the diplomat, uh, the two of them wrote a series of articles for Business Desk uh, in, in which they were uh, opposing the government's policy, particularly the policy which uh, is overambitious and the only way we can meet it, the only realistic possibility of us meeting us is by buying offshore credits. So we're going to have to buy, according to Dave Frame, $30 billion worth of offshore credits by 2030. $30 billion, $30,000 million. Now, this, this is huge. Now, this is more than the health boat. And oh. we are under this climate change regime. According to Professor Frame, we are on course to spending that sort of money uh, in China or somewhere to buy hot air credits to offset what we say are our sins. But we do all that without even lining up our greenhouse gas inventory uh, with, the, uh, with the decisions that have been published by the IPCC, by the uh, United Nations. Uh, and so we overcount uh our emissions and then our overcounting is going to cost us 30 billion dollars now you know this this is crazy stuff uh and you know i think i i think there are two steps don i agree with what you say the 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 huge overcalculation is that uh uh methane is causing 40% of all new zealand's emissions uh, that's a, uh, uh, an acknowledged overstatement. I think there's virtually no argument that's an overstatement by about four. So that brings us down to saying that methane's causing 10% uh, of our emissions, of our warming. Uh, and there, I don't think frame will go any further than that. I think that's as far as you're going to get frame to go because right. he he he's a an alarmist he's on that side of the fence but of course there are plenty of other scientists and uh prominent amongst them professor will happer and uh in mine garden uh and tom sheehan 
who say, well, okay, good, you've come down from 40% to 10%, but the 10% is also wrong. Uh, and at that point, we get into quite complex. Well, we get into you know, pure and simple science. Uh, now, how are we going to resolve a scientific dispute? Uh, it's uh, uh, you, you need to have some sort of uh, um, uh, inquiry, some sort of commission of inquiry, uh, which will hear the viewpoints of uh, the alarmists, will hear the viewpoints of the skeptics, uh, will bring the, the issues down to something that people can get their heads around uh, and then eventually uh, decide who's right on this and who's wrong. But who's going to do it? Because oh. around the world, the, the whole climate thing is not focused on agricultural methane. Now, the place um, to even, do even that. Worse, I think if I may interrupt her, it's even worse they're deliberately deceiving us. You would think that David Frame, who was a lead author for the fifth and sixth IPCC reports, would have a handle on this thing. And his, you know, directive to the Ministry of Environment would at least get the methane warming effect right. But no, the Ministry for Environment, their policy document from which all the councils, because of the methane issue doesn't just affect rural New Zealand. It's all these organizations, including councils, are now being asked to inventory, to make an inventory of their greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, I had a policy document put forward and I had a look at it. They were using the 2007 IPCC fourth reports warming uh, DWP global warming potential. So when I asked that why are we looking back at science from 2007, we are in 2023. There have been two more reports since. I was told to have a look at this guidance document that the government produces, and that very clearly says we use as a small footnote we use the 2007 IPCC global warming potential figures to ensure consistency with New Zealand's Greenhouse Gas Inventory Report 1990 to 2020, which were used as the basis for all our calculations. So they are that rigid that they, it is cast in stone. You know, they are not budging from that, despite David Frame being a lead author in the fifth and sixth IPCC report. So that's where we are wandering around in 2007. And for town people, this is going to come to the fore when their councils have to make, have to put in money into all these uh, measures from wastewater treatment plants, effluent, your landfills, garbage disposals to bring down the methane emissions. Because we are over-calculating them, where are rates going to end up at? Well, uh, this is on the over-calculation mm. point, Jasper. Yes, yep. I... Uh, it, it, I, I just don't think it's sustainable for anybody to say I'm relying on 2007 report uh, issued by the Working Group 1 of the IPCC and we know that Working Group 1 has put out another report in 2013 and another report in 2021 uh, and in their latest report they say no, we got it wrong in 2007 here is what no. is the right figure. And so how can politicians say, but it suits us better to rely on the old figure because we already did it. 
And it's, mm. it's got nothing to do with science. It's got everything to do with what the bureaucrats find to be convenient. Now, that can't fly. It, 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 has, can't. it has flying Barry. It is right now you go to environment.gov.nz, you look at the measuring emissions, a guide for organizations, last updated 16th August 2022. This detailed guide is a part of eight documents and tools uh, for measuring emissions for New Zealand organizations wishing to report their voluntarily their emissions. So this, they are not budging on this. I have tried. I've hit my head against a wall. They are not budging past 2007. Just, Brett, it doesn't really matter what they do. Mm. What they want to do is to apply taxes to all of us, to five million of us, right? And if they are going to apply taxes on the basis of uh, wrong science, and all five million of us know the science is wrong, uh, and we ask them, why are you putting this tax on us? And they say, because it's convenient for us. Then they're gone. Now, I'm not saying it'll happen next week, but I cannot see how in a democracy you can have a government which joins, to, joins up to the IPCC, it signs up to the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, it pays annual dues, and it receives and signs off on the sixth assessment report. We've not only received it, the New Zealand government got a early copy of it and signed off on it. So now it is no possibility that the New Zealand government isn't committed to that sixth assessment report. And it says we are overstating it by a factor of four. So if now, I could play the devil's advocate if I play the devil's advocate here, are they doing it because if they can, you know, vilify methane to the nth degree, then they don't go after carbon and you can put the burden on rural New Zealand and uh, subsidize the urban? Is that is that what the end goal is here? Uh well uh if if there is nothing if this is simply an attempt to uh, to screw the farming community uh at the expense of everybody else uh then i don't think that's sustainable either but uh, but i really think that the way it's being presented is that uh, no, we are sticking to the way outdated numbers because it suits us. It's more convenient. It's what we did before and we don't want to change. Now, that's just not an excuse at all. It'll never fly. It may take a little while, but you, you can't make policy, policy which might cost us $30 billion. And David Frame says it will cost us $30 billion. And we're making that policy on the basis of science that we know is wrong, but it suits us. It's more convenient. It just can't fly. Well, it's had 25 years of flying and uh, to this point, and it's given a whole lot of people a whole lot of paychecks. And it's very frustrating to a, to a producer to have that continue. The saddest thing is uh, we do have some producers and some aspiring um, candidates in, in the next election from rural New Zealand sort of saying that, Oh, we'd like to continue methane being demonized uh, because we'll uh, be first out of the blocks to have a remedy and we'll get better market advantage over our competitors. 
I mean, that's that was yes, the argument. I've heard that, that from a Can National Party. I think it's oh, appalling. It's appalling. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. But but just just uh, when you, I just wanted to take pick you up on you saying we've had twenty five years of it flying. Uh, we, we haven't really. We've had twenty four years of uh, the IPCC being accepted, uh, and we don't like what the IPCC used to say. Uh, but they used to say that methane was 28. Uh, so we've had 24 years of that, but we haven't been able to turn them around because they say, look, the IPCC is the holy writ. It's the Bible. It's the gold standard. So if they say it, you cannot, all the arguments you make at farmer meetings simply bounce off our coat of armor. Our coat of armor is IPCC. Now the coat of armor has gone away, and it's only gone away for about a year. Yes, and, and we- what are they doing? Well, they are crying, flailing, waving their arms, but they will have to give way. <laughs> they will have to give way, and so um, moving on a wee bit from um, from that article in the Farmers Weekly that's uh, raised the ire of a lot of people. Um, let's talk about. Um, uh, the, the, there's the blogging that goes on uh, effectively and, and the big, big networks of alarmism that goes on. And one one um, blog that we I picked on last week was D-Smog, and you've um, alerted us to it with regard to the, you know, finding out William Happer's credentials out of it. Your name is in there. Um, they've attacked you on a, you know, and so this is an alarmist blog, uh, listeners, and it's got, thousands of articles built up in there uh and there's a whole database of supposed skeptical people <laughs> and there's some some big names in there from tony abbott to donald trump uh you know jaspreet's name's not in there yet but i think it could be <laughs> um uh, and mine's not unlikely to be there because i'm a nobody but uh, barry your name's in there and uh, what do you say to some of the um the assertions that are made under your heading in there. It, you know, they've written quite a quite a, um, a missive on you. Uh, they've quoted you on some certain, certain things. They've uh, talked about your stance on climate change. You've talked about, they've talked about your speaking uh, roles around the world and things. What, what commentary can you give us on that? Well, the smog blog is, or the smog website is a uh, New York um, sort of a uh, a spy service run by the climate cartel, uh, and uh, they are uh, they collect uh, what they like to call as dirt you know, information on everybody everywhere as in every country in the world, who speaks out uh, against the uh, their preferred narrative about climate crises, about the climate emergency, as they, uh, they put it. Uh, and th- this whole narrative is backed by endless money uh, and they have, a, uh, they have a spy service, they have a whole lot of other services, they have a PR service. They have the world's largest uh, PR companies uh, who are right there at Madison Avenue. They have, of course, 
huge amounts of finance in Wall Street, which is also just down the road. Uh, and they they use this money for a variety of uh, of objectives. It's a wall of money. Uh, I, I thought it was worth looking back to what John Kerry, as you you'll know, I think John Kerry is the special uh, climate czar for President Biden, and and he told the uh, the gathering that. Address climate change at Davos, the World Economic Forum, uh, earlier this year, uh, where he had flown in along with over a thousand other private jets uh, to discuss what was needed to be done about climate change. And he told the uh, World Economic Forum that the WF climate strategy is modeled on the global. COVID vaccine rollout, and it needs a lot more money. Now, this is not money to uh, build wind farms or to look at technology. This is money for the uh, political influence strategy. And I'm now quoting what, what he had to say. So, he says, how do we get there? Well, the lesson I've learned in the last years, and I learned it as Secretary of State, and I've learned it since, reinforced in spades, is money, 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 money. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that. Now, Kerry's not touting green investments. He's talking to philanthropists about philanthropy. We have to do it on a massive basis, he says. And the key to that one is philanthropy. I mean, yes, technology, yes, exciting initiatives, yes, organizing winning races politically, but we have to go further. So they, they have gone further. Uh, and the, there's an unbelievable amount of resources now behind this uh, climate crisis cartel, uh, Jeff Bezos, as one individual, has given $10 billion, right? He's given a billion dollars a year for 10 years to Friends of the Earth and other organizations to employ, well, to do a number of things. But if that money was used to simply employ campaigners, then that would employ 10,000 full-time equivalent campaigners a year. That's from just Jeff Bezos. Then you can go through a whole long string. I did mention that over a 1,000 private jets flew into Davos. And so we get to endless billions of dollars that are being poured into this uh, climate crisis narrative. Now, this, this is a subject that used to be about science, but it's now about money and politics and nothing else. Not just some of it, all of it. It's, it's I mean, ethical, we've reached ethical. a stage, Don, sorry, in this country where we have patients, we have emergency room physicians, head of uh, Palmerston North, hospital uh, hitting the panic button saying that patients are routinely, routinely 
waiting 60 hours for a bed. That's two and a half days. And we can, the fact that we can even think of spending this amount of money is obscene, just obscene. It, it's called ethical investment, uh, uh, Jaspreet. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you and I, you and I want to do a show on um, on financing. Um, you know, ESG where the financing going, and stuff. Yeah, where the, the money's money. going. Yeah. And I've always been queer. I've always queried, and in, in my own mind, what the heck a non-profit organization is, because there seems to be a lot of problems in non-profits. Uh, I haven't quite got my hand hit around that. That's something else we need to investigate. But Barry, you talk about a cartel. I mean, if you're in downtown Invercargill and you're worried about paying your taxes um, and you, then you get a carbon tax put upon it or you're a farmer, no one's thinking of cartels. They've been brainwashed into believing that they've got to do something. So it's a big well, quest to educate. Yeah, well, they have been brainwashed. We've had an example just last week that the New Zealand government uh, set up $300,000 they paid to Television One uh, mm. for, for an hour-long breakfast program. Now, this is would be expensive uh, advertising if it was paid for by advertising, but it was, uh, it was pure and simply propaganda. Mm. Right, it, it, it's advertising, if you like, but the advertiser is undisclosed. So it's given to you uh, as a taxpayer. Your taxes are taken, used by the government to brainwash you as a taxpayer, uh, and you know that that is utterly insupportable. Uh, and it's being done, but but of course, it's what governments do is. Uh, and governments have got unlimited funding because they use taxpayers' money for it. Uh, but this brainwashing, you will see it. Have you, have you at any time in the last year seen a an article in the uh, ODT uh, which opposed the narrative of a climate crisis? No. 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 Well, if you go to the web, you'll find that there is a – it's not only the uh, the spying organisation. It's not only the finance organisation. Uh, there's a journalist organisation called Covering Climate Now, and that too is headquartered in New York at Columbia University of Journalism, and it has uh, a big list of members. It says it gets to two million people. Uh, one of the listed partners is the ODT. What? Uh, and it puts out, every day, it puts out a series of stories which the ODT can pick up and run as if it was theirs. Uh, <laughs> these are not news stories. They're not even opinion stories. They're propaganda stories. And this uh, covering climate now, uh, it runs annual seminars or more than annual uh, has awards, people get free travel. Uh, now, almost all of the, a lot of the, uh, the news media organizations, uh, the larger newspapers, the television series, they actually now have a climate reporter. Yeah. But that climate reporter is subsidized. 
the the money flows from uh, New York uh, and pays for that climate reporter. Now that you've got the climate reporter on staff, you have to you've got a you know, a beat, right? So the climate reporter has to produce a climate story virtually every day. Uh, no choice; they have to, uh, and they can't produce the story that says. Uh, look, we learned something that goes against the climate narrative, or they, they're down the road. So we have a whole news media bought and paid for, uh, God knows how many journalists who are actually on local payrolls but are really being paid or heavily subsidised by people like Bloomberg in the US, uh, and they just give the steady drumbeat of brainwashing uh, material on the climate crisis narrative uh, and you get it every day of the week. Now, so, so, what can we do about it? Well, people like you, Don, are trying to inform people that there's more to the story than that. <laughs> yeah, I've got nothing to lose. It's interesting. I, I honestly can't understand how anyone can prostitute them to lies. I just can't. I'm too naive, perhaps, but it just seems wrong that uh, people could be so uh, caught up in this misinformation campaign um, and they have the temerity to say that we, or, or my side, seek trying to seek some clarity and, and integrity is the one peddling misinformation. I mean, it's it's hard to believe we've come to this in 2023 uh, when we've had supposedly... Um, 70 odd years post World War II trying to believe that we're doing everything right for the world. Everything's going to be better because we're going to be smarter. We're going to be um, nicer to our neighbours. We're not going to be having so many um, tensions in the world. But all this seems to be about driving tension. And uh, I just don't, uh, I can't subscribe to it. I believe the simplicity and truth. And clearly, yeah, my naivety is costing me a lot of. Uh, a lot of energy. Well, there's this, there's this thing called uh, noble cause corruption. <laughs> yes, uh, and I think a lot of um, a lot of people in the media industry uh, made the decision years ago uh, that this is a threat, and uh, that. I should uh, devote, make what impact I can to offset the threat. Uh, and then, of course, it becomes easier when everything's paid for and it all just rolls out and you get stories provided and photographs provided and all the rest of it is provided. But they still, they, 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 they either do believe in the original noble cause idea uh, or they took themselves into continuing to believe it no matter what evidence is put before them to say well look you can't say there's a climate crisis because the ipcc has said there's been that global warming doesn't have any impact on extreme weather now how can you possibly now say there's a climate crisis well they just close their ears and say fingers in ears Climate crisis, climate crisis. crisis. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Roger Pialki Jr. has written an article recently uh, um, in the Honest Broker blogs that he does talking about how uh, all bar all the parameters around weather and climatic conditions, all bar temperature, there's nothing to see there. There's no increase. In fact, there's probably decreases in the last hundred years in several of the of the uh, elements he talked about. But there has been some warming, uh, some temperature increase. So the IPC and he gleaned that out of IPCC data, like you do, uh, and yet we never read one bit of that in the New Zealand media. Uh, the only people that have said it are on shows like this. Uh, and and so, therefore, my next question revolves around, if there's a change of government soon, what chance in Hades is there to get the National Party or ACT or New Zealand First, if they're in power, to move the dial to some, some sort of integrity spot? Well, uh not easy as uh, as uh, you mentioned before there are some uh, national party candidates who think uh, uh, it's, it's actually a good thing uh, to tax New Zealand farmers because the whole world might do it one day and then we might be a step ahead and we might get some advantage I said to the one I was speaking to that if I see a cost-benefit study which shows that the benefits actually do exceed the costs, then I might be persuaded. But but I, just from what I know, the costs are going to hugely exceed any possible blue sky, never, never benefit that might come somewhere down the track. Uh, but um, I I don't think the National Party can avoid um, addressing some of the many questions which have arisen. Things are very different now than they were the last time the National Party was in power. Probably, well, in a couple of really big differences uh, on CO2, the IPCC and the United Nations are now saying the uh, 2100 climate uh, temperature is likely to be 2.5 degrees above uh, pre-industrial times. Well, you know, the target that everybody would love to have and we had signed up for at Paris was 2 degrees, which is just a, only a half a degree difference. And if you look at the margins of error in this, you know, there's really nothing left in it. So now we're down to a prediction of two and a half degrees, which nobody can be very scared about. And we find that we've been overstating. And then again, the IPCC agrees that we've been overstating our, uh, our methane emissions uh, impact by a factor of at least, well, a factor of four. Now, those changes must lead to changes in the attitude that the National Party takes. They have to agree after the election on a, uh, a coalition agreement uh, on the basis of the poll numbers at the moment, the survey figures, it will have to be an agreement between the National Party and the ACT Party. The National Party's uh, policy on climate change is far from clear. The national, the ACT Party's policy is 
very clear uh, that they want to see the uh, net zero by 2050 uh, act, which is now part of the Climate Response Act, but that act, they want to see it repealed. So somewhere between doing nothing and repealing it, there has to be a compromise. Uh, and I, uh, I would hope that they could at least agree on a compromise where the Act is brought into line with the Paris Agreement. The Act at the moment is, is very much different uh, from the Paris Agreement in several really important respects. Uh, for example, the Paris Agreement says net zero by 2100. It doesn't say 2050. We just decided that New Zealand could improve on that and New Zealand could uh, didn't need to be part of the team project to achieve this by 2100. We would actually beat everybody to it and do it by 2050. Now, a whole lot of other countries have said the same thing. Uh, so I hope there can be an agreement to, to align to align ourselves with the Paris Agreement. If we don't align ourselves with the Paris Agreement, and who do we align ourselves with? Greenpeace? Mm -hmm. Yep, and I used the analogy, uh, and I'll use it again a couple of weeks ago, that it's like little boys peeing up against the urinal uh, at, a, at a school toilet. Uh, it's it just who can pee higher, and it just makes you, and little New Zealand seems to be the one that wants to have the, the big, biggest flow So um, and pressure. So, uh, you know, Barry... You're very candid about this stuff. I don't know how you've done it for as long as you have and understood it and wanted to read it. it to me, I've just got to keep it simple. And I know uh, it, it doesn't hit the mark, but uh, I think, Jasper, I hope you agree with me that every time we try to unpack it and and get it to a point, it's the simple, simple stuff that sticks. It's the simple yeah. stuff that resonates with people. And it's about telling the story simply uh, and clearly. And Barry, you help us a lot. And so uh, I think we should draw this interview to a close. But um, yeah, happy to have had you back for a second time. And don't think you'll be off the hook uh, in the future because uh, we're going to have you back multiple times um, when you get, get the time. So uh, Barry, uh, on behalf of us both, thank you very much for tonight's or today's contribution. And uh, we'll see what happens on uh, October 14. Can we all get some sleep? We will. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Jasper. Thank you so much. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive honest media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Welcome back. You're on RCR with the Greenwash team. I'm Josh Preet and Don Nicholson has been replaced by Jill Booth as we cover the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number four this time around, quality education. And before I get Jill in, I would like to talk to this email that comes from this uh, really good website called thefacts.nz. And they send out an email once a week or so. And their email number 95th dropped into my mailbox last week. And it was about Kiwi kids leaving school. It seems that since 2017, 
the number of children, Kiwi kids, that are now leaving school without any NCEA qualification has risen by a staggering 50%. It used to be 10% kids leaving without uh, NCEA qualification in 2017. It's now 15. Currently, 25% of students leave without getting NCEA level 2, considered to be usually, you know, the bare minimum while leaving school. And uh, 48% or so left without getting NCEA level 3 or university entrance. So this is what we are looking at. Agil, a staggering fall from grace. It is a staggering fall from grace, isn't it, Jasper? And it's um, very different from the days that I was at school. I left high school in the oh mid-70s. Gee, I'm giving away my age, aren't I? Um, <laughs> and it was under the under the old school suit and UE system. Yep. And it seems to have gone heavily downhill from there. But the difference was when if you left school without school C, you could still get a job. And not that many kids went to university. It was only the, the top of the top and the brightest of the bright or the incredibly um, self-driven. So this whole one size fits everybody and everybody's got to go to university and polytech um, is failing spectacularly. Really and, sad. But yet, if we look at it on, at the outset, you know, uh, climate hysteria, climate alarmism ticked off. Gender studies or all sorts of... Uh, New additions to really sexualizing kids at a much earlier age ticked off. Uh, white guilt, colonialism studies ticked off. What's left? We've well, got to wonder where all that comes from too. So, what's made what has made such a massive change in our education system? And again, because this is a United Nations um, program with the seventeen Sustainable Development Goals. So, once you start to have a look in it, at it. At the back, lying at the back and at the heart of our education system now is UNESCO, um, the United Nations Education and Science um, Project. So once again, through Western countries, they have got a one-size-fits-all um, education system. And this education system now is about, they call it GCED, which is Global Citizen Ed, Education. Wow. So now, now your children are being taught how to become a global citizen. They've taken away the fact that we live in a in a sovereign country, and the, all of that's been stripped out. Um, and we are now a global citizen, and we, we our children are being indoctrinated in global citizenship and social justice. And when you when you look into that, that is really frightening. So I'll just touch on um, if you go look for a woman called Maria Perot. So M-A-R-I-A and then P-E-R-R-E-A-U, Maria Perot. She is a national network facilitator um, for Aotearoa Social Studies. And she has a UNESCO PDF that she has written about this. I think it's four or six pages long. And mm -hmm. this is all about global citizenship and it's all about social justice. And social justice comes in with the CRT, the critical race theory that kids are being taught, and that comes in under various names. And then, of course, this total indoctrination that the world is boiling and we're all going to die of climate change. And I think these people are doing our children's mental health serious, serious problems. 
the number of kids now that really believe our world is going to end because of climate change is is really frightening. And it, and it carries on into university. I can't believe it. So, listeners, UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. It's a specialized niche agency of the UN. And when Jill was speaking, I quickly Googled Maria Perot, P-E-R-R-E-A-U-N-Z. And there came up the UNESCO website. And she speaks about this discussion paper that she's prepared for the New Zealand National Commission for UNESCO on global citizenship education. And what is a global citizen? Somebody that works towards fulfilling the United Nations 17 SDGs, you know, has them down pat like a parrot. We now have master's degrees in the sustainable development goals. It makes me wonder what is being taught at university. How can they find so much content to be doing these uh, SDGs as a master's degree? And Maria Perot, she speaks of the global citizenship education as a social justice education. She says human beings are not born with an innate ability to function in such a way. We must learn how to be democratic. And while democratic values such as freedom of speech, equity, human rights, education are heralded as foundational to democracy, not all democracies safeguard these. And now, I, I you know, Jill, a few years ago, when we had Malala Yusuf Sharif suddenly being the Pakistani schoolgirl who survived an atrocious attack on her, being heralded suddenly everywhere, you see influencers being made out of people who have no idea they're being co-opted. Greta Thunberg, another another girl, a, a mentally unwell girl that has been so used to push the message of climate disaster, climate emergency. What stress have they put into that young girl's head? You know, and, and, and these people are criminal with what they do to our children. But the whole education system is set out. And from UNESCO, they have an international commission for global debate and movement to forge a new social contract for education. What do you now, mean you a new through, social contract for education? No, well, I will have to interrupt it? you here. What is, where, where the hell has the reading, writing, arithmetic, the basics of it gone? You read these documents, there is nothing about parents. There is you know, nothing. And, there's nothing no. and, and they're wanting your state to be your children's co-parent. Yep. And, and that's a very dangerous situation to get into. I am looking at Maria's paper and she says the answer for Aotearoa New Zealand is a framework of social justice education that encompasses both education for and about social justice so that hierarchies of race ethnicity, class, gender, sexuality, etc. are not uh, accepted and neither is the normalization of privilege of some groups over others. This is absolute nonsense. At the same time, when they are pushing this, what is the reality for the average New Zealand student? A couple of years ago, Roger Partridge, senior fellow and chairman of the New Zealand Initiative, he wrote a blog post. Another blogger called By Evolution is True carried this in 2020, he wrote that New Zealand students once ranked near the top of the International yes. Education League tables. In the results in early 2020, from the group called Highly Rated Progress in International Reading and Literacy, amongst all the English-speaking students of the world, where you know English is a, taught as a language, which would include a place like India also, because you learn English right from day dot, New Zealand year five students 
were placed last out of all English-speaking countries in reading. Yes, and that doesn't surprise me because I remember a long time ago, I think New Zealand in education ranked about eighths seventh mm. or eighth in the OECD countries. And then we turned around and followed the losers, which was the K-12, um, when the K-12 education was just being bought in in America, especially in the blue states, because you can't say America now is a generic thing, red states or blue states. So we followed the blue states K-12 education, and you cannot win if you're following the losers. No. And and from there on out, and I think that was during the George Bush presidency, actually, that the no child left behind. And I love the way they come up with all these wonderful things. No child left behind. We are all in and, this and together. We, we are all actually in this. Yeah. In this but there's together. a really neat quote I found, um, Jasper, from Thomas Sowell, and I just love the guy. And he says, um, the more I study the history of intellectuals, the more they seem like a wrecking crew dismantling civilization bit by bit, replacing what works with what sounds good. And that's exactly what we've got now. Everything sounds great, you know, global citizenship and social justice, but it's a killer for our children. I it really is. Agree I, I'm glad that. I don't have children at school. I'm, I'm thrilled I don't have kids at school. I'd be ripping school to pieces with my teeth. Thomas Sowell has said, I'd really put it so well. And this is where mm. the socialists or the communists or whatever you call them, they've always gone for. It's always been about the children. It's always been about wrecking the very fundamentals of, you know, civilization, your health care, your education. <laughs> and where here we have it. We are now 24th out of 26th in all the OECD countries in terms of educational achievement under this PISA scores. This, the study has been carried out, you know, the PISA study for over a quarter of a century. So it is not a really small sample. It's quite representative. And in the past decade and a half, New Zealand school scores have declined by 23 points for reading, 22 for science, 29 for English. And keep in mind, the basis for this is 30 points is considered the equivalent of one year's learning. So pretty much in all in reading, science and maths, New Zealand students have lost a year's worth of education and have been drummed into a whole lot of other climate, gender, you know, colonial nonsense, which is leading to anxiety. And this is where I think we are failing our children desperately, desperately. But that's the UN for you. We we are failing our children, but a lot of it is because we simply don't know and, and aren't aware. And, and I take my hat off to these parents that get stuck into school boards and, and get involved in their children's schooling. And again, the the power of parents is huge. And this can only this can only run away or become a runaway train if we let it. And for, for those of you parents and grandparents that are, are keeping a very close eye on what's going on in in school, I, I take my hat off to you. Kudos. Well done. Absolutely. So please don't uh, let your attention wander. Keep a very close focus, as Jill says, on what's happening in schools, universities, and what exactly our children are being taught because we owe them this much. It is our job to protect them, to nourish them, and to prepare them for a better world. So on that note, Jill, Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sorry we've been shortchanged for time, but uh, 
you know how uh, it goes. You've got a lot schedule. more interesting people on than I than what <laughs> I can offer. Just great, but you know, uh, and just remember, everything the United Nations touches turns to custard. So um, go hard, get out there, have fun. I've never particularly liked custard. <laughs> 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 and with that we come to the end of this week's show thank you so much for joining us this morning have a great week whatever you do bye 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 Jaspreet Bhopparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR Reality Check Radio